The Jason Cabinets Experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Justin Bills. Justin, you ready to be great today? I'm ready. Justin Beals is a co-founder and CEO of StrikeGraph, a security co- compliance company which he incubated at Madrona Venture Labs in early 2020. As a serial entrepreneur with expertise in AI, cybersecurity, and government, governance, he started StrikeGraph to eliminate the confusion related to cybersecurity audit and cert- certification process. He is also a board member of the ADA Developers, ADA Developers Academy. He is a creator of the Training, Tracking, and Placement System, U.S. Patent, and the author of Alignment Curriculum and Evidence Learning Effectiveness, which was published in iJet Magazine. I know I messed that up. Um, Justin, thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to join, of course, and please don't worry about it. Like It's semi-bizarrely technical <laughs> if you're into technology and education or some of those other weird areas. Yeah. So, Justin, Justin starting off, I want to ask you this. Well, how do you take care of yourself? Kind of like you're doing a lot, you know, mental health is a big thing, you know, health is a big thing. Like, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah. I mean, um, I guess one of the, the first things is, uh, and I didn't do this as well today as I did when I, I didn't do this as well when I was younger as today, but like listening first, like, where am I? You know, a- am I in a danger zone from a mental health perspective? Am I feeling confident? You know, is it highly variable? Am I all over the place? Is it stable? And I think you got to like carve out space, you know, in your day, whatever it is, whether it's the the exercise that you do or, you know, something where you can listen to what's going on in your head and how you're feeling a little bit. It's easy for the outside context to redefine your own self-perception, right? Um, Certainly, like, if I'm not in a great place and exercise is important. Um, you know, my, my favorite form is a yoga practice I've had for many years now. And sometimes I'm not doing good about waking <laughs> up in the morning and getting it done. And sometimes I'm doing better. Um, and then, uh, I think another thing is, is just actually to re-engage my brain 
into something that's really engrossing, but is not my work or, or not something that's high stress or the same thing all the time. Uh, for me personally, actually, uh, I, I really enjoy sailing. Um, you know, we, we both live in the Puget Sound, greater Puget Sound area. Uh, and, uh, and so there's a ton of just amazing places to visit on a sailboat out here. Yeah. How often do you go sailing? Um, I, uh, I have been, things have been busy at work, so I, I'm not keeping up with it as good as I should have. But when, when I'm really engaged with it, I'll do a race once a month all year long. But then the prime racing season for us is, and the wind's really blowing out there today, uh, will be, um, you know, March, April, May, June. Uh, by the time July and August set in, the, um, there's not much racing to be done. The wind kind of dies down and we get those bright, big, sunshiny days. And so then, uh, uh, me and my wife go cruising around uh, the San Juan Islands and up into Canada. Yeah. How long have you been sailing? Not too long. I mean, I meet a lot of people here that grew up, you know, racing at the local yacht club. Uh, different here, right? The the local yacht clubs are a little um, more family oriented. Uh-huh. They're they're not like the hoity toity New York thing, <laughs> you know. Uh, Uh, A friend of mine, when I sold my first company, um, a friend of mine invited me and my wife on a a cruise in the Mm -hmm. BVI uh, where we hired a skipper to take the Mm -hmm. boat for us. And um, I I had an epic week. You know, I also was in a like a mental place where mm-hmm. I was shifting gears from being an owner mm-hmm. to selling my business to understanding mm-hmm. what this new role was for me. And um, it had a big impression on me. My wife really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of type A and I was like, <laughs> I want to do this again, but I want to be the skipper. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I took the <laughs> yeah. classes and it's a whole. Yeah. It's how, a, how long does it take to learn to how to sail? Well, you know, in just a day, you can pick up on the basics mm-hmm. and there's great like like uh, early classes, I think that the American Sailing Association uh, calls it their 101 class. Mm-hmm. And it's like a Friday afternoon, a Saturday and a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And you'll go out in a small boat and, and learn to drive the boat mm-hmm. around. Um, if you want to get to the place where you can rent a, a sailboat and take it out for like a week, like in the British Virgin Islands, um, you usually tend to have to do a one week onboard class okay. where, where you learn that. And so that I took about a year between the first class and that class. And you don't have to take in Washington, you have to have a small license to be a boater here, mm-hmm. but you don't really have to do anything to buy a boat. So if you got the money and uh-huh. you want to get out there and run it into something, <laughs> you can do it whenever you're ready. <laughs> so what keeps someone from like getting a sailboat and just like sailing off in the Pacific Ocean, right? Is there rules against that or something? Or like, of course, it's not the safest thing you do, of course, but like, what is it like? I, I'm a, I got a lot of money. I want to do a sailboat and a sail somewhere, right? No rules whatsoever. Okay. Like, if that's what you want to do and you've got the money to do it, you can put your life on the line and go out there and do it. Okay. Now, it is incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and uh, it has been the toughest thing. I think that's why I've enjoyed it for so long. There is constantly something new for me to learn in mm-hmm. it, you know, whether it's weather, uh, whether it's understanding the sea state and currents, uh, whether it's understanding the equipment and how to keep track of it and help it work well. Uh, if it's learning how to deal with a crew, which is always changing, mm-hmm. right? And like what their needs are and how to be good at what we're doing. So that's what I mean by that engrossing, you know, mental thing. It, Especially when we're racing, uh, you have to be 100% engaged with that mm-hmm. activity. Uh, there's just no no space to do something else. And that gets your brain unplugged from what's going on at work or something else. 
So what's the either uh, two part question? What's the farthest you've gone out, and how many days consecutive have you gone out? Yeah, so um, our longest race, and that's probably how I like measure my achievement in it, uh, is I really enjoy um, near shore mm-hmm. distance racing, and uh, so we have a race that called the Swiftsure Race. Uh, it runs out of Victoria, Canada, on the very south end of Vancouver Island, and goes all the way out the Strait of Juan de Fuca uh, into the Pacific Ocean. They anchor a big Canadian. Uh, naval vessel out there. That's where you turn around and then come back. And so we can be out on that race straight, no stops for 40 hours. So we'll start in the morning, go all night, uh, go the next day and get back into Victoria that late evening. That's the longest I've been able to skip her. Um, There is another one I've done that goes around Vancouver Mm -hmm. Island, and I was a crew member on that Mm -hmm. one. It wasn't um, my vessel, and uh, I did the offshore leg. So that means we go outside of the north end of Vancouver Island out in the Pacific Ocean all the way down to Victoria. That is amazing, beautiful, and and just uh, hard, hard, hard work, but worth it. So I'm guessing sailboats aren't cheap, right? So I'm guessing you, you buy a, you buy a sailboat once and keep it as long as you can. Yeah, especially during the pandemic, it was wild. You know, people say uh, when you get a boat, you know, that your best days on the boat are the day you get it and the day you sell it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing is that um, during the pandemic, everybody's looking for you know something to enjoy outside, and so it was actually really hard to buy a boat. I, I had people come by. And I, I have a forty foot. Uh, Grand Soleil, and we'd have people come by and just offer us money for it. But I, I wouldn't do it because I, I wasn't going to be able to get another one. And I had plans for adventures that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think that this will be the second uh, large vessel that I've owned. I, I, I've had lots of kayaks and canoes over mm-hmm. the years. Um, uh, so uh, this one we really love. Um, hang on to it for as long as I can. I, I don't really see a big need to switch it out. And it, it, it it's incredible equipment, right? Because I can have fun going out for an afternoon with some friends and bouncing around Guemi's Island, mm-hmm. or we can, um, you know, I, you could sail it to Japan if you wanted to from here. So it's, it's a great piece of equipment. Yeah. And you keep it at your house or is like a dock you keep it at? Yeah, we keep it at a dock. So, um, you know, I live in the greater Seattle area. Um, wh- where I live is Laconer, Washington, which is a tiny little town, uh, very close to Anacortes, which is the, f- that's the ferry docks to go over to the San Juan Islands. And so we keep the sailboat over at Cap Sante Marina in Anacortes. And I'm a member of the Anacortes Yacht Club, which is a great community to learn about sailing or, or join in and um and so we we participate out there yeah is there anything else you do for fun or, or selling like your number one hobby so to speak um that's the one that definitely takes up the most money <laughs> the, um probably the second thing that uh and i have a lot of hobbies but the second thing i probably spend the most amount of time on is skateboarding okay yeah and i skated when i was a little kid and um, you haven't outgrown it yet <laughs> i have not yet but i think i probably should it's harder to get up and you know easier to break bones <laughs> that's right yeah but um there's just something really magical mm. about it. Um, I'm I'm not much of a street skater. I, mm. I grew up skating pools and like mm. half pipes and stuff. Mm. Tony Hawk was just inventing mm. a lot of stuff when I was a kid, and so the tra- what we call transition, where you, where you got this, you know, that shift from a vertical to a flat plane, it, it's a little more gentle on you because you can scrub off speed okay. as you take a fall or something. But um, we have a great little skate park in Laconer, and I go out there at least once a month, sometimes two or three times in a month and uh, get some turns in yeah also is it crazy like how people get money make money off of anything like back in the day like tony hawk i think rob ski go to his name is all these skateboarders like 
kid, get off my lawn. You know what you're doing. And then they're, they're like multi-billion dollar industries by themselves, right? Yeah. Just from doing a skateboard. Like, who would ever thought, right? Sometimes you really do got to lean into your passion in a way, right? And and also what you're good at. Yeah. I, I think. That's, it, yeah. It, that, passion, <laughs> passion plus good is way to go. It really helps you get there, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Um you know, I, I was never good enough at skateboard to be a pro, uh, but I definitely um, have noticed some interesting business stories. Like there's a great uh, company called Welcome Skateboards, and they're generally around the PNW area. And it was a, a tech guy that sold a company and wanted to start, didn't see that some of the old school, bigger skateboards mm-hmm. that we used to have and built his own special company. And, and Welcome just almost as a like a a brand philosophy is just brilliant. You know, it's very open-minded about skateboarding. It's, it invites all to come and join. It's creative. And so like, I see these, these brands and the graphics works they're doing. And so even today there's incredible new inventions coming from, from that sport. Yeah. Yeah. I think with skateboarding, like you see like little kids doing it, males, females, all ages, right? All yeah. you, everyone can enjoy it. There's nothing always cool about it. Absolutely. And man, that's what I always wanted as a kid. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, let's be fair. You Dude, know, skateboard here. <laughs> right. Or even within the community. I mean, if you take a bunch of outcasts and you throw them together, sometimes they don't treat each other well, you yeah. know, because they've, they've suffered some trauma on their mm-hmm. own. And so when I was, when I was a kid and first skateboarding, there certainly were some clicks and, you know, you weren't man enough, might've been yeah. a comment, but yeah. today I go to the skate park and you're right. It's like multi-generational mm-hmm. and it's all different types of colors and, yep. you know, it's all different types of backgrounds. And that's what I always wanted. And I always celebrate it. And, you know, I invite anyone, regardless of your age, your background, to come to the skate park and learn. Just yeah. ask somebody, you know. And if they're a jerk, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and maybe wear some extra padding to your clothes. That's right. Yeah. Especially <laughs> for starting out. Yeah. Because it, 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 it hurts. I don't care if you fall on concrete, walls, dirt. It yeah. hurts. And it is not um, – it's not any other kind of sport in a way. Mm. You know, I, I know we have competitions, but – uh, most skateboarders that have done it for a while generally reject the the concept that skateboarding is a competition. Mm-hmm. It's for me, it's a deeply personal expression. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it is creative. It's a form of art, it's a form of art. and um, and I I don't care if you can't ollie or you can. I don't I don't care if you just ride hills. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's you, and I'm going to celebrate your expression. And my form of skateboarding is I hope a little different than everyone else's, <laughs> and I'm contributing back to that art form in a way. Yes. So moving on, um, you, you did an article, I think it was on LinkedIn, where you wrote about should the federal, federal government have a national cybersecurity cyber standard? Can you talk right. about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we have seen a lot of mistrust in the marketplace between sharing data between companies for good reason. One of the things that I've learned in the last five years, um, in especially in researching to start StrikeGraph, is about 70% of major data breaches were coming from third-party vendors. And you know, we can think of things like SolarWinds. You know, that was that was a third-party vendor data breach that was really difficult for a lot of Microsoft customers in the Microsoft ecosystem. And so they're already put in place these self-policing measures. You know, sometimes industry responds more quickly than the government will. And so in the industry itself, you know, buyers are, if they're sharing data, they're 
asking for their vendors to get these uh, security certifications or audit accomplished from an independent tester. And I think that we're going to see the government, you know, once business starts going that way, you'll see the government start going that way as well. Even beyond just like privacy, like we see GDPR in, in Europe or California consumer privacy. I th- and there has been a lot of talk from the FEC. And then uh, there was interesting comments from the federal government that they're interested in creating a required um, standard for businesses to operate from a security perspective. So if there's this national federal government standard, I don't see how they make that fair for big business, small business, right? Because big business, all the, you know, all the resources and you got a small business, I don't see how that, that can work or, or would it work? Yeah, I think that's a, that is a, a fair, that's really fair fear. Like it can go really awry. Um, we work with a lot of standards these days. And one of the things that, I think has been really innovative is that we've made these standards something that very small companies like we got five person AI startups that are driving at, you know, SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and, and achieving that audit. But then we have large customers, 10,000 employees plus that are driving at very similar standards. And so there's two things I think to understand about how these standards work in a way. One is, is that think of it more like a rubric and less like a, a strict, like you must do this. Mm -hmm. It's more like they're going to ask, like, how do you keep data private? They're not going to say, we require you to encrypt all data at this level of encryption. They don't go that way for a very specific reason. And that way, a small business may say, hey, the way we keep data private is a lot different based upon the risk profile of our business than another company would, a bigger company. So that's helpful, right? Like yes. we can meet the rubric without without it being too onerous if we design the standard well. The second thing that's really important to know is that parts of these standards apply to certain businesses and don't to others. And it's very common to go into audit and be like, hey, um, you know what? This portion of the standard doesn't apply to me because I'm this type of business. And then usually the person that's doing the testing will just double check that and be like, yeah, you're right. You know, um, we we have uh, organizations like law firms, for example, they're not pushing production code. You know, that's that's not what they do. So there are parts of the standards, though, that they're going after that apply to like change management and production patching that they don't have to put in place any security activities for. And and that's okay, right? Like, uh, so I do think that if you design them, they can be flexibly applied. And of course, the authors of these standards, it's important that they take that into mind as they're writing the standard itself. Who does these audits? Mm-hmm. It really depends on the standard itself. Um, so for things like SOC 2, that's a very common one in North America, and it's like a general business security standard. Uh, the way it is written by the AICPA is that the final assurance needs to be performed by a certified public accounting firm or an independent certified public accountant. So just an individual CPA must perform the final assurance. And if you think about what they're setting up there, like this is a lot like financial audits. When someone does a financial audit, they're like, I tested this much data in your financial audit because they they won't test everything. They they just can't go through every transaction. And they'll say, based upon the amount of data I, I tested and the result of that testing, I can make a statistical assumption about the rest of the data. Um, that's a very similar function, you know, for these like SOC 2 type audits. The, the way we think about it is 
What really needs to happen for the testing is a cybersecurity expert generally needs to do the testing. Um, and then a CPA can review or reperform the testing to ensure that it meets that statistical level of assurance on, on the testing itself. And so that's SOC 2, right? That's, that's very specific for that standard. Like HIPAA, it doesn't have any sort of testing standards. And we're launching our HIPAA certification product uh, very soon. What we do in that instance is that we do all the testing and we perform the report uh, so that you have like a sales asset to be like, hey, StrikeRaft tested us against, you know, hit the HIPAA standard and found us to be compliant, you know, with the requirements. Uh, but we don't have to go to a CPA and get them to review that work. Yeah. The audits, are they, is, that, is it like a grading scale? Is it pass fail? How does that work? Yeah. What they'll do is they'll have a list of, um, I can't remember the number, but it's somewhere between like 60 or 100 different line items of what they're the rubric is testing against and essentially it'll either be a pass on each of those line mm -hmm. items or they'll find what they call an exception mm -hmm. and they'll say okay so for um you, you know you you getting passwords to match your password policy we found an exception when we reviewed the data and so in your report it would state an exception is in there uh, very rarely do you get an exception unless you're kind of just not watching uh, what's going on or, or our tool is meant to ensure that you're ready to go into testing um, because um, you're just well aware of something's going to fail beforehand. So you, you, okay. you just need to make sure and review before you go into the testing. So let's suppose a company does fail or get exceptions. Do they get a retest, have to go through training? What's the repercussions of that? Yeah, so one thing they can do is they can be like, yeah, we don't care. And so they can just share the report with the exception. Now, the risky run at the end of the day is that uh, a buyer might be like, oh, this exception worries me and I'm not going to I'm not going to buy your product, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you don't fix it. Um, so uh, uh, you could do that, but you can also just go in and get retested mm -hmm. if you want. Um, the Some of the audits are like a historical perspective, you know, so let, let's say you're looking back over the last year, like a financial audit, and they find that exception. Before you get retested, you need to let some period of time, usually a minimum of three months pass, so that you've recollected that that operational data that you were doing the good security, and then you can test because you can't necessarily fix a historical issue that you failed at. Yeah. Let's say a small business starts starting off like five to 10 employees. Or two part question, when should they like bring on the own security person to do this? Or is it better for them to like, bring on a company like yours, outsource it? Yeah, so at a 10 person company, I think it's better to bring in somebody from the outside because a cybersecurity expert or, you know, the typical I'm sure term not, is- I'm sure they're not cheap. They're not cheap at all. Like a CISO is chief information security officer is very expensive. Yeah. Or, but even like a, a security engineer or a security analyst isn't cheap as well. And if they don't have that mentorship, they might not be prepared to really kind of give that umbrella perspective on things. You have a couple different options in the marketplace. Um, you, there are some organizations that provide what they call a virtual CISO, which is kind of like a part-time uh, CISO to just kind of help provide leadership. We do like similar things for like uh, part-time HR support or something like that, where you can kind of share a resource between multiple companies. Um, or you can utilize a system like StrikeGraph. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to do for StrikeGraph, you know, because 
as a CTO, I always like work to like get good security implemented, but I, I wasn't a security expert. And so that, you know, that's a little dangerous. I, I know we need to encrypt data, but ha- have we encrypted it well or have we put good processes in place according to the latest standards? I, I didn't know that. And so that's what our product a lot of times is meant to do is allow that 10 person company to design the security posture that matches their business only by knowing their business. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, certainly, I think these solutions and the, uh, uh, like Strikecraft are really helping. We think about it like access to good, good security mm-hmm. information. You know, um, we want to broaden that access so more people can implement good security with less resources. Yes. So I'll go go into more detail about your company in a minute. But how do you recommend a small business owner or any own, owner period, regardless of industry size? They'll pick the right company for them. What should they be looking for? Yeah, I think um, you you probably want to look for somebody that understands what resources you have. You know, I, I would be sensitive to, you know, a platform or a service that is going to ask a lot of time of your team. You know, because maybe they want to do, you know, maybe they're used to work, working with like Fortune 50 companies and you're a small company and they're going to they're going to make it almost too onerous in a way uh, because they're used to working with as much larger organizations. Um, similarly, I think I'd recommend somebody that kind of understands your product space and data. That That's really critical. Like it's the data here that is driving the number one risk. And so if you're reaching out to like a virtual CISO type organization to just get some consulting a little bit, make sure they've done a, a project or two in Enterprise SaaS, if, if that's what you do, or healthcare information, if that's what you do. And just think about that data that you're going to use. And that's where the risk comes in a lot of times. So next, um, you also did, a, I think you did also called, a, and I like this, security compliance, why is a business accelerator? Yeah. So most people think about what you're doing, like, you know, like spending money. You made the case where no, he's actually making you money. Can you go to detail about that? Yeah, I think it's a huge shift, by the way, right? Like this change from five years ago. Um, my first tech job, professional tech job that I was paid for, um, I was a security engineer for British Telecom. And so this was like 96, 97. And uh, right off the bat, one of the things they taught me when I joined the team was like, well, you know you spend enough money on security if you weren't <laughs> hacked, right? <laughs> That, that was the litmus test. I was like, Ooh, wow, that's scary, right? And and so um, today, uh, I think that what has shifted is that we don't have to like be so squishy about what good security is or is not. The standard helps. It's it's a huge benefit to these companies to be like, oh, there's a there's a defined bar that I can kind of pick. And there are lots of standards out there. So you can pick one that fits you a little bit and go after that. And, and that's just much better. Look, we use standards for all kinds of things that are really important. Like we don't write code without a standard framework for how that code gets put together. Because otherwise, even with a language definition, like, oh, we're going to use JavaScript, it would be an utter mess if we, you know, we didn't know where this file was or how this function is defined. And so these are just really like important structures to help you meet an expectation and and understand how you're doing. So that's incredibly innovative, I think, in the security space and really, really helpful. All standards have issues, you know, that they're not not perfect and we can complain and we're constantly trying to build better ones. And uh, I think that's really good. But but man, it's so much better than just wondering if you did the right thing. 
Yeah. So there's no federal standard. Does that mean that each state has its own standards? Each city has its own standard? Um, the, you know, some of it is like industry specific. So one thing we could say is that like HIPAA is a federal standard in a way, mm-hmm. like it's federal law. So that exists. Then you could look at a state like California. It yeah. has California. It's a whole different country. As that's they right. Say. <laughs> the, the California Consumer Privacy Standard. Uh-huh. No other states that I've heard of have written their own special standard. Okay. Um, and then secondly, we have like industry policing where buyers are saying, hey, I want SOC 2 or ISO 27001 or one of these other standards before I'll do business with you. So those are the three main areas where you'll see this come in. But I think, you know, the, the or PCI DSS is a good one, right? Where the, like the industry has said, hey, this is our standard for credit card mm-hmm. processors. Um, I think we're going to see the federal government, and especially the FEC, has levied higher fines against companies with serious data breaches where they had no defined security practice inside. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think we'll see more and more of that come up. So these companies like, you know, multi-state offices, like what standard do they follow? The higher standard or just mm-hmm. one standard? Or- so there is like for, for buyers in government, um, there are a couple standards that crop up. Um, one uh, that we hear for the federal government is called FedRAMP. And it's a subset of the NIST uh, 800 uh, compliance standard. It, you know, it's just a list of those. W- one thing to be these are complicated like areas and I've spent a lot of time trying to learn about what each of these are designed for. So NIST stands for uh, National Institute of Science and Technology. And so the National Institute of Science and Technology did publish a really large spreadsheet of recommended security practices called the NIST Computing Science Framework or CSF. But that standard alone, it it has everything from like, you know, how to uh, specify password lengths all the way through to what to do with like classified top secret information. And and not there's no company that's going to do all of them, mm-hmm. right? So um, so we also see some states building what they call state ramp, you know, which is slightly, pretty much the same as Fed ramp, but slightly different that they'll put out there. And so state governments are starting to do that a little bit. Um, and, and there's just a whole patchwork of these little things, but mostly it's. You know, the buyers are saying, like the federal government is saying, hey, we need you to be FedRAMP audited, you know, to do business with you. Uh, for the Department of Defense, it's called the CMMC uh, standard. It is a subset of the NIST standard. And so that's theirs. And they have they have like different levels. They have level one through three. And depending on the level, there's a different set of rigor in the testing process. And, um, so it, it is a little bit of a patchwork, but there's no like all business should do such with data within the U.S. government, kind of like HIPAA says, if you don't take care of healthcare information, that healthcare data, you're liable for it. You can be sued, essentially. Yeah. So I know if you're a software developer, you got to keep track of everything, all the changes, everything except data, whatever, on a daily basis. It's the same with what you're doing. Is things constantly changing, checks get upgraded, updated? We see... um, I'd say every quarter we see two or three shifts go on, you know, so like this quarter, ISO, uh, the ISO uh, governing body launched a new version of the ISO 27001 standard. So it's 27001 2022 is what they call it. We just uploaded it into our system. And we're also seeing a new standard that just got released that we're launching on our platform called uh, TSAX, T-I-S-A-X. And that's for automotive suppliers. So a lot of the auto- automotive brands like uh, 
BMW or Volkswagen, they've decided together that they want a special security standard for all of their suppliers. And so now that's kind of sweeping that whole marketplace in a way. And I'd say every quarter there's two or three changes that are happening. And we just constantly keep them updated in our platform so that people are kind of aware of what's what's going on. It's slower than you'd think, right? Like th these governing bodies aren't super fast, <laughs> you know, which is good. <laughs> yeah. So would you say it's easier to be a CISO in the private industry or the government? Right, let me get right back. Would you rather go from government to private or private to government? Ooh. Um, I think the pay cut going to the government is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a damn good point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have... Um, uh, I, I have some really dear friends and family members that work for the Department of Defense um, in the security space, mm -hmm. some of them. And I think the way it tracks out more is like they want to they, they love what they do. They care passionately about the work they do mm -hmm. in the country and and keeping people safe for what they do. I, they, I don't know the details for a good reason. They don't tell me. But um, but I, I think someday the private sector would look forward to them making a contribution. And certainly they would they would pay quite a bit for all that amazing experience they've had. Yeah. Yes. So you, you have experience in the tech startup scene in Seattle and other locations, correct? Yeah. Can you do a, a quick appearance of like how you like go each, about each one? Like I don't want to say what was better, but like the pros and cons of all these places you've been at. Yeah, for sure. So if you can't tell from my Southern accent, I'm from Atlanta. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Um, uh, I... Um, and uh, I finished college in 95. Uh, uh, I was already a programmer. I, I programmed since I was a little kid. I was always really curious about computers. Um, and I got my first job at British Telecom that, that paid uh, really well. But pretty quickly, I was like, man, I, I want to like build a company that has a better culture, you know, um, a culture where people that are different, you know, like all those different skateboarders coming to the skate park can like come together and just feel welcome no matter who they are or what background they come from. And, um, so, uh, Atlanta though is very conservative business environment. Right. And they're like, I'm not giving you my money <laughs> to build your company. So, so I had to be really judicious about the types of businesses that I could build. Mm -hmm. And so the first early businesses that I built were services companies, you know, um, and uh, I had the, the first one to actually make some good money and have some good growth was a, a company called Roundbox Global. And I started it in 2000, um, founded it, and it was a consulting company. And we specialized in education technology. And there was a lot of innovation happening in that space between 2000 um, to 2010. I actually sold that business in 2009. Uh, I grew it um, to about 130 consultants. Now, speaking of like geography, one of the things that we did that I just, I'm over the moon about the experience that I've had and it's a big passion for me today and has really widened my brain to the world was I had uh, set up software development centers in Costa Rica and Chile. And so I did a ton of work in um, uh, Central America and South America and have amazing friends there and just doing business in these different geographies. And you know, we'd go, we'd go to like Costa Rica and be like, well, you know, we'd be looking at the computer science grads and be like, the, their, their options were like working at a bank or coming to work in with us. And we'd be like, yeah, well, we got like PlayStation for lunch. And they'd be like, oh, I'm down with Justin. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
after that, uh, I sold that business in 2009. I, I really wanted to kind of um, give my wife an opportunity mm-hmm. to actually dictate where we went because my career had been pushing us. Um, is she also from Atlanta? Yeah, she is. We, we both grew up there, met at the goth club. You know, it's a classic <laughs> 80s, lo- late 90s love story. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, she was like, man, I, I watched fame. She said, I, I watched fame as, as a young girl and I, I always wanted to move to New York. And I was like, we're moving to Manhattan. We're on it, <laughs> you know? And so I moved to Manhattan for two years and lived in Greenwich Village, worked for Macmillan Publishing and loved the city you know it, it basically it's about anything you want to find any subculture any any group any interest you have you know manhattan kind of has it or the broader new york like i i'd get on the subway on sunday mornings and ride out to rockaway beach and go surfing and that's crazy you know for me to like ride the subway to the break you know <laughs> so i thought that was so cool i had a little sailboat out there so we did a lot of sailing and uh, it, it was amazing um, moved back to Atlanta after that for a while, uh, a couple years, and uh, worked in Silicon Valley some uh, for a startup out there called Hot Chalk. Uh, we built that to about three hundred million in revenue, mm-hmm. big education tech um, provider. Um, they sold that. I moved back to Atlanta for a little while, and, and then I got invited by a friend to come to Seattle and work. And that's what brought me out here about six years ago or so. And I, I really, I really enjoy the Pacific Northwest. I enjoy the business culture. We have a lot of friends here, and love the adventure. Yeah. So you said like your previous startups were like ed tech. This one is not ed tech. This is not ed tech. Yeah. So why the why the switch? Yeah, uh, I got really frustrated with the general ethics of the education system to in general you know a lot of people that work in the education space are very passionate about it and i i am too i still am very passionate about good success but actually the education system failed me in a lot of ways i i don't i don't think that i was um i was given uh the opportunity for me as an individual to really fit in with the machine um I was a straight C student, right? And you know, my degree's in theater, not computer science, because I, it just seems so dull and boring and agonizing to go sit in those computer science classes. I wanted to create, you know, that's why I was interested in programming. Um, and so uh, I worked in education for a long time and I wanted to really build innovative software that helped people learn in unique ways. But the problem is the broader marketplace just refuses to change, you know? And so you're selling like an innovative piece of software or you're asking a school to like lean in and improve how they're doing and they don't even want to think about it. And I don't work in that space. So I'll be a little critical of it, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, their endowments are big enough that no one needs to be charged a tuition, not a single person. They make more off the interest on those endowments than they can spend in a year. What are they doing? Really? If why are they, you know, setting these poor kids up for hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and making it so hard to get into that, you know, other people can't try? I I was sitting, I was just floored. Uh, I had an amazing opportunity to listen to a talk by Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University. That's an organization that's doing really innovative things. You know, Arizona State University is 
put their first four freshman courses up online for free. And if you take those courses and do well in them, you get accepted. They don't care if you took the SAT. They don't care if you took the GRE. They're like, you're, you're, you're proving to us that you have the capability to succeed here by doing it. And we're going to give you the opportunity to keep going. And they don't believe that education be, should be sold like Ferraris, you know, <laughs> it, 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 the, 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 making it hard for people to get something, especially schooling and education is just not the ethics uh, that, that should drive that industry. Yeah. And definitely not defend Harvard at all. At Harvard, Harvard's too much money, money, much of money, but at least you get something, you got a Harvard degree, right? Right. What about these schools? Like, you know, North Dakota Institute Technical Bullshit University yeah. charges about the same amount of money, right? Right. Or like, you know, you go to like some liberal arts school, 30000 a year, you got a degree in nothing, and yeah. you 120000 in, in debt. Doesn't That's make any right. sense. It doesn't make any sense. And I'll give a shout out to my college um, in Durango, Colorado, Fort Lewis College. You know, their current president is doing some really innovative things there. And that school has a charter to allow um, indigenous peoples and Native Americans from tribe members to go to school for free. And so 30% of the student body uh, comes from a, a reservation. And, uh, you know, one of my classes in College was Navajo rug weaving, amazing art form, right? But I had no idea, and and they gave me the opportunity to learn about this amazing culture uh, and surround myself in the Southwest and the Four Corners area, uh, and the, and 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 learn from really great people. And so I, I just think that there is a vibrant set of education outcomes. I think I was frustrated in the education marketplace that so little is done. So little effort and money is spent on helping students that and and I couldn't get products into the hands of students. So one of the things that I promised myself when I built StrikeGraph is that I want to build a really ethical product. Mm. And I think that the reason I've been frustrated with the products that I've been developing is that I can't sell it to the person that gets the value out of it. Right. Mm. Like there's a professor in between me and the student that's deciding which textbook to adopt. There's a, a, a state government that is deciding which, you know, which products they're going to buy or not buy. You know, the, the only K-12 products that I see, saw be very successful, the, um, the company didn't have a single salesperson. They had lobbyists and they go to the state government and they'd lobby mm -hmm. the state government to get it put on the state budget and bring it in. And as just as I saw this play out over a decade and a half, I was like, I'm participating and I'm, I'm really not happy. And so one of the things I say about StrikeRef is that our customers directly get the value out of our product. And, and like that fundamental decision and the ethics of it really mattered to me. So I kind of promised myself I wouldn't do another education startup when I was getting ready for this one. And I'm sure I'm still passionate about it. I, I want to say that there are millions of people in the education industry that care deeply about these challenges and want to solve them. And I champion them as being working in a hard space. And really a lot of the leaders need to just open up their hearts. Or move on. Absolutely. And and, and just recognize, right? Like, please be a part of the solution. The, it, it, you cannot wait for a whole nother generation of kids to get out of school without, you know, the appropriate skill set. Um, we, we just cannot wait. There is no time to waste. That's something I give this generation of kids credit for. Like when I was growing up, you're like, you got to go to college, you know, don't go to public school, don't go to trade school, go to college, whatever. Yeah. 
now kids are like, man, do I really need college? Like they say they want to be successful without college. They say it's like rip off, you know? So yeah, I get that plus. So on the same subject, from your point of view, what should the, what should be the, the, what's what we're looking for? What's the object of school or college? What should yeah. college be like teaching you how to think, get sent for a grade or a job? What should college be doing for students? Yeah. And I might juxtapose it from um, the way it was, right? Like I think the way it was for you and me is, grade school, college was about getting you to fit into the boxes that you need. Yeah, be, be the part of the matrix. That's right, yeah. With a nine to five job <laughs> and pay Uncle Sam's federal tax money. That's right. And if you didn't fit in that box, then you weren't gonna be very successful in those organizations. And sadly, you'd wind up, you know, you know, if, I mean, I just wanna say that like, there's a lot of creativity in welding, there's a lot of creativity in mechanics, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of creativity in the trades very broadly. And I, I celebrate that and those that are really interested in doing that in agriculture, uh, that type of stuff. But I just, if you didn't fit into that box, they just felt like you weren't, you know, you were judged as being not capable of making an important contribution to society. Um, so I think what it, what it should be, what I think it should be today is about giving kids all the way through college, you know, young adults, the opportunity and space to invent and create. Now, I watched my nephew, um, we, we've been playing Minecraft a little bit, and uh, I jumped on there on Minecraft with him, and he was showing me some of the stuff he created in some of the worlds, and I was like, these are like crazy 3D programming languages, right? Like, he's trying to auto-spawn weird characters to turn them into weird... And you're like, I know you didn't learn that in school. <laughs> I know, yeah. So I was like, How'd you, how did you learn all this? Oh, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and I, it, the University of YouTube. I know he was a deep expert. And so, um, uh, Michael Crow, the president of ASU was talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. He says that, that ability to, to be autodidactic, to self learn, um, is incredibly powerful. And I think we should be teaching kids to lean into their passions and learn about them. So they get that muscle. Right. Um, so I think teaching is one, being able to consume information well. Uh, there was a great article in the New York Times in the past two weeks about teaching phonics so that kids are better readers. Like that seems like an important grade school skill set. You know, you, you need to fundamentally learn how to consume new information so that you can keep learning. And I think when you get to college, you should be building a company like you should roll out of college, you know, with 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 a company, you know, whether it's just you as a, a sole business owner that wants to start a retail shop in fashion or like me that, you know, I, I should have been building a product or a consulting company or something along those lines the whole time I was in college. And I, I think that's where it's got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to the Seattle tech startup scene. How long, how long have you been in Seattle? Yeah, I, I think it's about six or seven years now. Okay. Yeah. So since you've been here, what have you seen some pros and cons of the Seattle tech startup scene to include investment community, startups, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So uh, I just, I have really enjoyed building companies here um, a lot. And the community has been really exceptional. Um, I, one thing I'll say about Seattle is that I feel like Seattle is really good about like feet on the ground, head in the clouds. You know, when we think about business and invention and 
and what can be done. Um, you know, Atlanta was too conservative. It was really hard to find capital to build a business. So you couldn't get your head in the clouds very much, right? You're constantly <laughs> dealing with a lot of gravity. Silicon Valley is like untethered <laughs> from reality a lot of times. And, and I, I really struggle with some of the assumptions that they make about economics. What? what? Your idea is to build a space accelerator, accelerator moon? Here, here's $10 million. <laughs> I know. It's crazy, right? And so I, I really like that about the community. Um, so I came here originally to work with a startup called Koru, and it was a, a great couple of co-founders that are deep friends of mine now. I was their CTO, and um, and so that was a lot of fun. You know, we built a good company. It was uh, focused on uh, human capital management. We did a lot of um, AI work in the space, which was really interesting. After that, um, there's two incubators in the area that I've had a chance to work with that I'm, I'm a huge fan of. I did a little work with Pioneer Square Labs. Um, they're just around the corner from, from here in the studio. Um, great team there, and, and they built some great companies. And then StrikeGraph, I incubated it at Madrona Venture Labs, um, just a couple blocks away as well. Incredibly talented mentors and leaders that helped me make the transition from like a CEO to a venture capital backed CEO, which is a whole different set of knowledge, especially the mathematics around how, how these organizations are set up. Yeah. So what makes a great CTO? Yeah. I think um, I think a really great CTO, first off, has to know, um, has to understand like how software is is built in a way or or whatever the engineering is right like um i've always liked this concept of like the ceo at a um at a train company you know was a, tr a railroad engineer first right like they they worked their way up through the jobs or they tried out a little a lot of jobs inside that company so one thing a good cto will do is that they will have been a programmer for a while they might have been a product manager for a while um they might have been in qa for a while right like testing um uh, but they'll, they'll have just understand the components that go into kind of bringing together an organization to deliver whatever the solution is that the, the vision of the change they want to see in their, in their world. Um, the second thing a CTO has to be really good at is they need to be really good at working with people. You know, it is, it is 80% getting the most out of the team yeah. and 10%, you know, brilliant engineer, really. Um, so I like to say that um, when I was a CTO, like what we do is a team sport. Absolutely. And so uh, I think that it's a danger if you have a CTO that's like a rock star engineer that doesn't understand how to engage the rest of the team for the greatest output or velocity. Um, that's really important. And also the CTO, I think one thing you need to bring to it is kind of an understanding of risks, you know, and being able to have a little foresight of like, security perspective like what are some of our risks from a security perspective uh how to handle tech debt you know like if we make this decision it's going to impact a later decision that we might want to make maybe it's worth it for us to invest something in this up front instead of later um things like that so that's what i've tried to bring as a cto I, i'll say um when I was a CTO last, I would tell uh, my my executive team, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not the best programmer anymore. <laughs> you know, like programming is almost like um, like being a monk. You know, you need to like do it like day in, day out for, you know, four to six months. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of have this velocity of 
of how to write code and get it into the the system in the right way. Um, but I'm really good at bringing the, a great team together and getting the most out of them that we can, and also have them feeling really wonderful about their job. Not not like we just crunch time <laughs> the whole thing forever. And I said, and I'm also really good about envisioning what technology can do and be. So I can see a year, two years, three years down the road what we could build and um, and the type of team it would take to go and build that. So as a CTO, what are your what is your process for like you know like building a great team members, mentoring them, making sure you pick the right developers, you know? Because yeah. I know right now junior developers are having a hell of a time finding jobs, right? It's, it's not easy. Yeah, and I think this is one area that I think a lot of CTOs could grow. You know, it's like um, they come in and they're like, ah, I want to hire a lot of senior engineers. I don't I don't think that's right actually. Um, what I did and what I specialized in, and I had to do this because my early companies were bootstrapped. And so I couldn't afford just a bunch of super high-end engineers. So I focused on hiring junior engineers almost exclusively and really ramping them up to like a mid-level engineer in just a year, year and a half, like quite quickly. And a lot of that is is like that education thing, right? Like don't like you know, sit like a sage on the stage and tell them what they need to memorize, but give them the opportunity to learn how to do it. And so if you're going to bring in that kind of raw talent, you're not looking for the greatest engineering capacity or, you know, the right degree in computer science. You're looking for someone that has a passion for the work um, and then a, a willingness to fail and learn and do better. Um, and then finally, someone, you know, that is a great teammate that will collaborate well with the others because they're not going to be able to grow kind of on their own. You need to grow together a team. And uh, I've had a lot of success, you know, building really high-end enterprise software with not the team you would imagine building it. So that's all fine and dandy. You have a tech background. You're pretty good at tech people, right? What if someone's a non-tech founder? How would they go about doing that? Yeah, I think if you're a non-tech founder, I I might recommend um, one of the things that we look for sometimes is we'll bring in a vendor that does this really well. And, and so this might be an outsource team. You know, one of, one of the things to, um, that an outsource team is supposed to be really good at is they're supposed to be good at managing talent in that way, right? Like locating talent hiring them and giving them an environment to be successful and maybe coaching you on how to get the most out of them. So if you're a non-tech founder, um, I've of course had a lot of success in Central America um, looking for services businesses that might be, you know, 50 to 100 engineers. So they, they kind of have that capacity to surround young engineers or their new engineers with some guidance and mentorship and then help having them help me build the product. Now you need to interview them like you're interviewing to hire somebody mm -hmm. because whatever their culture is, is going to kind of infect your culture mm -hmm. in a way and back and forth. So just be sensitive to write like, is this the right group with us? Do they value? Are we lined up from a value perspective? Like my value is that people are happy at work. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So don't look for a services business. It's just like rolling through people one after the other mm -hmm. really quickly and not treating them well and only focused on billable hours, you know, or they, they make sure that that team gets their holidays when mm -hmm. they're supposed to or stuff like that. Yeah. Let's say you're not tech founder. You have a business idea. You got some, uh, you got the idea, whatever. Should you, would it be worthwhile for you to learn to code the product yourself, at least the MVP yourself, and take the extra time? Like maybe if you hire the outsourced vendors, you get an MVP in six months. Right. But if you like doing the code yourself, it might take a year, year and a half 
Mm-hmm. Be, would it be worth that extra time, you think? I think it depends on what the market's doing around you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is not an engineering thing, but, you know, it, the product had to be engineered in a way that the story of the woman that started the Spanx product. Yeah, that's a great story. You know, she spent like five years testing out different nylons and fabrics and seeing what worked. And and people forget that story about her. They think, oh, she's like this Marta being dollar lady. Yeah. Like, no, she took like freaking five years, you know, she like grinded it out. That's right. And she had to learn a lot about the industry and, and manufacturing and what types of uh, fabric worked um, before. And she was very secret about mm-hmm. all she was doing right she didn't want anyone else to know mm-hmm. and and so she was quiet and did it and then when she was ready to launch she had basically written the code mm-hmm. you know for for the product so i think that's one thing you have to ask yourself right like if if this market is happening now and everybody knows it like let's say it's an ai thing and it's you know you and three other people are going to hit the market here pretty soon you may need to go find some funding and hire a team to get that out as soon as possible. But if no one sees the world quite the same way you do, and it's very unique, you might save yourself a lot of grief and own more of the company at the end of the day by taking the time to learn how to write that app, you know, that you have a vision for doing on a mobile device. So uh, that's the kind of the way I, I, I do the calculus. Um, I had a friend that was uh, wanting to write a series of children's books and uh, he was like, should I just, you know, I have this idea and I could get some money, you know, to be able to go write them, but they're going to take a bunch of the company. And I was like, well, is there any, are you going to be able to go any faster with that money other than just like doing it right now and then be able to own more? And he's like, no, not really. I was like, sounds to me like you want to, you want to just write the story, like get the product as far down the line as you can before you bring in that outside money. And that way you can be like, hey, I'm only selling 20% of the company, not 80% of the company. So how did being a CTO uh, sort of like training to be a CEO? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's similar like management stuff, right? And um, I think that's part of it. There was a lot I didn't. I want to say that I'm not not sure it was the best training. Right? <laughs> there were a lot of hard lessons on the other side. Um, the uh, when I was the CEO of Roundbox, our services business, uh, I bootstrapped that. I never took on funding. I just grew it off of our profits year mm-hmm. over year. And so, in some ways, I had to learn like business things, uh, but real common sense business things, right? Like um, profit matters, and <laughs> you know, and uh, um, the you probably need to know how to do P and L. That's right. <laughs> like, oh, what's this P and L thing? Like, uh, or or how to think about like costs. You're right, costs or hiring plans or growing too fast or growing too slow. Um, also, how to like deal with the legal process of an agreement, the inevitable HR issue and and how to handle that. Um, So I think I learned a lot of those lessons, but what I didn't have to do in that instance because I was a sole owner is I didn't have to really deal with a board. Um, I didn't have to deal with investors or capitalization and that type of work. Now that's been different at StrikeCraft, right? Like at StrikeCraft, and that's one of the reasons I like Madrona Venture Labs as an incubator is I had to understand what a cap table was and how to think about the ownership structure and what times to bring on funding, you know, to do great growth, how much funding I want to bring on, what goals we're setting for that, um, how to attract investors to the mm-hmm. initiative. Um, that was a whole different subset of skills uh, for the CEO that was very, very different. So how did your relationship with Madrono Lab start? How did that come about? Yeah, so... Um, 
Now, Kristen, the CEO of Koru, uh, after we sold the business, I, I was talking to her and I said, look, I, she's what you want to do next, you know, um, how can I help you? That's another thing, like networks matter, right? Like, yeah. and, and it's not just like somebody I trade a business card with. This is a, a dear, dear friend. Mm -hmm. I, I care more deeply about her health than what type of business mm -hmm. we do together. Um, I was like, I, I, I feel ready to be a CEO again. I, I'm, I, I had a lot of health, mental health challenges after the first go round. I, I made some not so great decisions about how to treat myself and the people around me. And, but I was, I was feeling like I'd spent enough time from that since I sold the business in 2009. You know, here it was 2018, 2019. I was like, yeah, I, I want to do that again. I'm ready to be a CEO again. Some of that is hubris. I was like, I've been watching some of these CEOs and I don't think they do a good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I can do that way better than them. <laughs> That's right. And so, uh, so uh, Kristen introduced me to um, uh, the chief technology officer, Jay Bartow, over at Madrona Venture Labs. And I had this idea for StrikeGraph already. I was, I come in with like, I have this concept, I see this problem, I kind of want to go after it. They actually at first um, were not fully convinced that I was ready to be a CEO. And they're like, do you have the background to manage a business like mm -hmm. this? Um, and we spent a lot of time learning together and then learning to trust me through the incubator process where they're like, yeah, I, I see How many other companies are in this incubator? Um, I think uh, now they know better than me. So I'm, I'm guessing here, but I, I think they, they, they're constantly trying to start new companies. Mm -hmm. I think they spin out maybe um, eight to 10 a year. Okay. The, 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 and not, you know, like I said, I, I might be a little over under mm -hmm. Mike Friggen is their CEO at that team. He, he'd definitely be able to give the right number, but they're, they're constantly like when I was there, there were two or three other ideas that were percolating mm -hmm. at any one point in time. Not all of them spin out, you know, not, not all of them in the research phase are valid and, or the, you know, you might find a massive competitor and another issue that doesn't make it a, a great opportunity. And, uh, and so you might back off from that. Okay. And then, so why, so were we talking any other venture firms besides Madrona Lab to your fundraising? Um, so Madrona Venture Group, um, that is uh, the bellwether enterprise software investor in the Pacific Northwest. Another one, right? I know whatever category, yeah, right? They led our, uh, they led our seed round. Um, and I'm very proud, you know, that they saw opportunity in us. I, I certainly think they're an amazing team. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they're real, their real success story is that they were really early investors in Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they saw what uh, Jeff Bezos was building in his garage here in Seattle and wanted to get so involved. They've been, around, they've been around for a while. A long time. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I was just over the moon that they mm -hmm. wanted to be a part of our company. I mean, that's the way I think mm -hmm. about it, right? Like mm -hmm. our board members, our investors, they're my team. Mm -hmm. I, I'm deeply working with them and listening to mm -hmm. them and, uh, and trying to find a new tip bits of information that can help me build a better strike graph. Um, and so they led our um, seed round. Uh, I was really proud of that. That was in like August of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, the perfect fundraising environment. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Things were going good, weren't they? Um, then we were, we've grown, we were growing really fast. We're still growing really fast, but um, 
just a year later, we raised our Series A. That was an $8 million round. That was a different lead investor. Um, the lead investor for that round was Information Venture Partners out of Toronto, Canada. Um, great investor too. A uh, little smaller from a team size, but long history of doing technology investing. And uh, Alex Tong that joined our board, um, it's just been an amazing collaborator, a really great teammate. Yeah. Now, was it during this time you were an entrepreneur in residence on Madrona, or that happened after your fundraising? Yeah, so I did the entrepreneur in residence. So I kind of joined Madrona Venture Labs, the, the the team there. We researched the market, the opportunity, the type of solutions and competitive landscape for the problem we were trying to solve. And at about January or February of 2020, uh, Madrona Venture Labs was like, Hey, Justin, we think this is a good idea. We're going to give you a small amount of funding, a very small amount. Um, and we want you to go incorporate the company. Uh, we're your first investor. And we want you to go out and try and like get that, that um, prototype out the door and your first tranche of customers so you can raise a, a seed round. So the company was founded in February of 2020. Um, I was joined by my co-founder, Brian Barrow, and we had this goal. We were like, I, I scraped together like a database with a kind of a little interface on the front mm -hmm. end of it. And I thought this is kind of what a product might look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, we said, we should try and go sign six customers for a thousand dollar check mm -hmm. in the next six months. And if we do that, then maybe we can raise a, a real true seed mm -hmm. round for the business. Well, we get to like August of 2020, and we've got 18 customers already. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's going gangbusters. It's crazy to me, like how how huge a problem this was. That that's really what was going on. Mm -hmm. Is we were we had a solution, but really we were testing the problem space. Mm -hmm. You know, how big a problem is this? How much money are people willing to spend on it? How fast are they making decisions to buy? Mm -hmm. And um, so that led to us in August of 2020. Uh, Madrona Venture Group, you know, the 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 big investing firm took in a look at us and being like, this is really exciting. We want to lead your seed round. And and so then we raised 3.8 million in the seed round. Mm -hmm. And uh, from their team, uh, Hope Cochran joined our board. And that really kicked us off uh, to launch our production software in November of 2020. And so uh, really pretty soon after that, you know, we had been kind of building the software in the background, what our, what our ultimate product would be. But just a couple months later, after we raised that seed round, we launched that production product and started selling full annual subscriptions. So from the time I'm joined as the experience in general, what do you see like uh, some mistakes that startup founders are making when trying to fundraise that they're getting wrong? Yeah. Um, so uh, not being you know, this being one of my first venture capital back companies that I'm running as a CEO, the horror stories that I hear about are a little bit are like, one is um, getting board members that just don't align with how you like to work or you want to work. And I think that it's really hard when you're passionate about a business, about an initiative, and you're looking to fundraise and get capital so you can build that company. Sometimes you're like, I'll, I'll take the money that's available. And sometimes you have to. I, I want to be fair. You, you don't have the ability to choose a great teammate. But I think it's important as best you can to pick those great teammates because you're going to be working with them for a while. 
And you're talking about hard topics, people that should be on the team or should not be on the team, you know, whether you have the right vision or not, you know, um, if you yourself as a CEO have the ability to succeed at it from an outcomes perspective that they and an investor is want. And, you know, the, your investors, your board, they can fire you. You know, that's, that's part of their job is to be like, do we have the right leader at this company? So you want also them to have, you know, an emotional connection with you and care about you and also care about you from the perspective, if you're not the right fit, yeah, to, to go ahead and make a decision Mm -hmm. that this is going to hurt Justin too, you know, that could be a decision that they need to come to. Yeah. So, the name StrikeGraph, does that mean has any significance or just a random name? Yeah, that's a great question. It's so hard to pick a name for a company these days. It is. So you have to hit all the social media handles, the ILCO.com, Blase, Blase. Oh, crap. Some company in the Philippines makes $10 million a year already has a name, right? That's right. Yeah. So I had three rules when I was trying to come up with a name. And and this is part of the process. Like the incubator is kind of watching me. They're like, they're like, ah, Justin, you know, have you come up with a name for the company yet? I'm like, no, no, I haven't come up with a name yet. You know, and you know, they're going to judge like whatever you decide. Everybody does at the end of the day. So I had three rules that I was really um, focused on for coming up with a name. One thing is, is that uh, I wanted it to be English words. Okay. I didn't want to make fake words. Yeah. I I just, it just like, I'm like, oh, how do you spell it? I don't know. Yeah. You know, does it like it sounds or is this weird? So I needed to be able to get English words. The second thing is I wanted the dot com. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do a weird uh, TLD at the end. Um, it's just confusing when people try to email you or try to look up your website yeah. or stuff like that. And the third thing is I wanted to seem uh, vaguely security-esque. <laughs> <laughs> and so it took I, – I did all kinds of hunts. Um, I, I had like a, a – a um a thesaurus up all the time i'd be like putting in words and be like give, give me like similar synonyms or even antonyms for the yeah. things that i'm not trying to be and patching them together in weird ways and then you go see it's like is the dot com available you know it's, oh, it's not available oh, or it's available for sale for 10 million dollars that's right yeah and um and where i landed i think the reason that i liked strike graph and i had a lot there were others that i i thought were more exciting mm-hmm. but I, you know something i couldn't get the dot com usually was mm-hmm. the reason that it wouldn't work um you know uh so much of like what this, the way people have solved the problem that we solved in the past has been like really horrible spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And uh, a graph is a data form that's uh, called a, an ontological structure. So it, mm-hmm. it doesn't just take into account like what are these two data points? It takes into account what the relationship between the two data points are. And that's a lot of what's um, powerful about our technology is that we have this incredible graphing map of a lot of the content that goes Mm -hmm. into security practices. And so you can really like leap from like risks into Mm -hmm. control activity to validation techniques to testing. And and because we've built that that graph, that map, and we can strike through it uh, to what you want to get out of it, I think I found some meaning in the name structure. So who is your perfect customer? Yeah, it's really important, I think, as a business to kind of identify your ideal customer profile. Um, StrikeGraph as a platform is really geared towards someone that has some expertise in these uh, compliance outcomes. And I, I think that's one thing to... like. Uh, a lot of people told me you know, it's important to know what you do and don't do, right? And so one of the things StrikeGraph doesn't do is we are not a security tool unto ourselves, right? Like we're not going to encrypt your data better. 
You know, we're, we're not going to force um, password protection and systems. We don't do your identity management for your platform. But what we do is we collect all that great activity and we drive at the security audits or certifications that you need to receive. We, we deliver those. So we're very focused on cataloging, you know, designing the right security posture, cataloging that security activity, and then certifying or auditing that customer so they get that sales asset. And so that's slightly different, you know, in that there are great cybersecurity tools that are out there that we pull in data from to show that you're doing the good activity that you need to do. Um, and and so that's that's really core to our value prop. So as far as pricing, like a lot of people, like whether they have like whether like they have a coaching business, a small business, a bakery, or a tech startup, like they have a challenge with pricing, right? I think I heard someone say, "What if you're charging, charge ten times more, right, or something like that?" Yeah. How do you determine your pricing model? What's your process of finally figuring that out? Yeah, one of our biggest like spaces that we're disrupting are literally the auditors. Like one of my biggest frustrations of the audit firms themselves that have in the past delivered these certifications is that they're fraught with like really poor testing techniques. Like you can send the same data set inside the same audit firm to two different people and get two different results. And and that just means that they're failing at actually, you know, a good analysis of the standard. So what we wanted to do was figure out how much those audit firms were charging. Mm -hmm. And it was exorbitant, you know, $80,000 for a SOC 2. And, um, and that, you know, when we talk about like access, like how does a small business like get this done? You know, that they can't afford that. Mm. And, uh, so that was one problem we needed to solve is we actually needed to bring the price down. Uh, but we needed to do it through technology because we still wanted like SaaS gross margin, you know, like, like software style gross margins on our solution. Um, so that was one way is that we priced the market. And one of the competitors that we think of is, you know, like PricewaterhouseCooper or A-Line, you know, uh, these are very storied old audit firms that do this stuff by hand over and over and over again. Um, we just believe that uh, and have built a platform where technology kind of drives repeatable testing results. Can you give a brief overview of like your marketing and sales, marketing sales and our business development process, like how you market yourself, how you get sales? Yeah. So um, a lot of investors will call this like, what's your go to market? I'll say, how, how are you doing that? So um, for us, um, uh, I'm going to start from the other end of the funnel, like where we close the deal okay. and then move back up okay. to how they might have fallen in. Now, not everybody does it that way, but I, I like to think. Yeah, army call that backwards planning. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. call the end result and then go backwards planning. <laughs> yeah. So we have a team of account executives, and they receive like a sales qualified lead. Mm-hmm. So somebody that we um, really, their definition of that is someone that is interested in buying. So they'll raise their hand and they'll be like, "I'd like to take a meeting or see a demo." Mm-hmm. And, and for them, they're prepared to do a demonstration of, of the platform and also listen to the customer. What are they trying to achieve? You know, and what we're listening for there is like, where do they perceive value in working with us? You know, so that we can make sure that we have value to provide them. Because if those aren't in sync, you're going to turn that customer out, you know, in a year. They're just not going to come back. And likely you'll get a bad review, too. So. 
Um, they're a great team. Uh, we have uh, about six account executives. Uh, we split on geography uh, presently, and they're just phenomenal at, at getting the deals closed. And you just come only in the United States or across oh, the world? We have customers across the world. Um, but our employees are mostly in the United States. Um, we have some uh, some teammates in Central America, yeah. just because of my history there, yeah. and a couple teammates in uh, Canada as well. Okay, yeah. So then, how do they get those sales qualified leads? Right, like where do they come in? And there's two major funnels for how they come in. One is um, is what we call inbound, and that's from marketing efforts. So we have a marketing leader. They make sure that our website is up and search engine options optimization mm -hmm. is working. Uh, they might plan for some paid advertising like Google ads. Uh, they might plan for conference attendance that we're going to. They actually helped me organize getting to meet with you, Jason, yeah. you know, so uh, press PR type work yeah. that we might do. Yeah. So we call that inbound and that drives a certain amount of those sales qualified leads. But early on at the company, we didn't do that because, um, you, you know, it's it when you're very early on, you kind of want to like see a dollar spent here like resulting in an actual like sales <laughs> outcome you're not guessing that this will result in something and so um we did what we call a lot of out outbound which means literally we had a team of sales development representatives picking up the phone or the email and contacting people and say hey are you interested in solving so basically this problem? old school call calling mm -hmm. so to speak. yeah and we built that motion first and then we added the inbound with the marketing mm -hmm. team and so that's how we drive a lot of that go-to-market work we're constantly shifting it and testing it um we're making an interesting transition these days. Uh, we talk a lot about it internally where I'm like, we're, we're big enough now, hundreds of customers, where I'm like, we need to be more focused on our strengths. You know, when we were an early stage startup, everything's a, a like a test or a trial or you're just seeing what will work. Mm -hmm. And you spend 80% of your time on those trials. And I'm like, now we need to shift over where like 70% of our time is spent on things we know work. And just 30% of our resources are going to things that we wonder if it could be useful in growing the business. And so that's been a little bit of gear shift, you know, for the team. Okay. Speaking of conferences, I saw where y'all going to something called an RSA conference in um, San Francisco, in, I think, next week. Yeah, that's a big cybersecurity conference. That's like a big one to go to. Yeah, yeah. This will actually be my first time attending it, so I, I'm kind of excited to go. Um, should be a lot of fun, yeah. As a purpose of just like meet customers, like are you gonna give a speech or like doing your demos or yeah, networking? So, so we'll have a booth, we'll have account execs there, we'll be doing a lot of demos. You know, our our ideal buyer is like a CISO, somebody mm -hmm. that knows security. Mm -hmm. You know, we have we have a groundbreaking software, but sometimes if you haven't worked in the space at all, it's hard to understand why StrikeGraph is so unique mm -hmm. in what we do. And and also how heavily we've invested in the solution itself as opposed to marketing and branding necessarily. And so um, I, of course, am meeting with a lot of colleagues. Uh, I'll meet with other companies that we might decide to partner with. Uh, there will be investors there, media there. Um, so generally it's just like, I think <laughs> you're kind of getting in the same geographic space mm -hmm. with a bunch of like-minded individuals mm -hmm. and hopefully sharing what might be an opportunity or just an idea of something to invent that you hadn't thought of before. So Jessa, who do you consider your mentors? Uh, who, who mentors you? Oh yeah. I've had a lot of them and I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, you know, these days I would say my investor, the the board members on my team are deep mentors. Uh, they help me all the time. Um, and then even the broader investors, you know, like we'll have people 
people on the board that invested, but we'll have investors that didn't take up a board seat, mm -hmm. but I know them well. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, one of our investors is um, a team called Rise of the Rest, uh, which is part of the revolution.com mm -hmm. fund, which is Steve Case's fund from AOL fame. And I was just at their retreat last week in Phoenix, and there's a lot of mentorship for me there. Um, I take it wherever I can find it in a way. And then pop to me the more, more important part of the question, who are you mentoring right now? Oh, yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, um, my team, certainly, I, I try to provide guidance for. Um, I am not a micromanager. I, I don't think that you get the most creative contribution, the most passionate contribution when you micromanage a, an employee mm -hmm. or a staff member or somebody somebody that reports to you. So um, I do my best, you know, I, I'll be very specific, like, you know, I'm here as a thought partner for you. We can talk about this problem, but you, you, you're gonna make the ultimate decision about how to go on this particular issue. Um, and so that that's something I try to do. Um, I just wrapped up my board uh, membership uh, my board contribution for the Ada Academy, mm -hmm. which is a boot camp for um, women and gender diverse people here. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, so that that was a great thing to join in, and I think it goes both ways. They they, they mentored me in a lot of way. I I hadn't participated in a board in quite that way, mm -hmm. so they you know it's fun to see what my board members must go mm -hmm. through when they look at us being a board member at another mm -hmm. organization. It, it allows me to be really empathetic um, with with my teammates. Yeah. So what does ADA developers do? It's like a boot camp or yeah. I kind of know what they do, they do from the website and like LinkedIn profile, whatever. What do they actually do? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, boot camp would probably be the, the, the smallest phrase you could use, you know, in a way um, of what they do. I think it's a really amazing um, organization and many of the engineers at Strikecraft uh, graduated from there. So we're, we are not only big fans of what they do, we yeah. are, consumers of their product too at the end of the day so you know like me like i went to college for theater right now i'm a little lucky i um i knew about programming before i ever went to college i was really into it so i was able to make the transition to tech but a lot of people you know that they're, they're interested in it but especially if you're a woman maybe it didn't seem like a very comfortable culture to join you know like there wasn't people that you know kind of knew how to treat others professionally necessarily in the engineering environment, no matter what culture or, um, or uh, gender they may mm -hmm. represent when they come in. And so this uh, school was built to help people that had already graduated with a degree, mm -hmm. generally, mm -hmm. that's not always true, but most of the time, make that transition into tech. And it's a very robust educational program. Like you do spend six months in um, classroom, but then you actually spend six months in internship. Mm -hmm. You know, do that point about college being about literally doing work in the thing, like learning the habit of the thing. Um, that's that's what they do. And they have internships, everything from like Amazon to like little startups. Yeah, I know my niece just finished a program and she has an internship with Amazon right now. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it's a great community. They're very supportive of each other, you know, very interested in DEI as an initiative mm -hmm. for our industry. Um, and I've been a big fan. I've been a big fan all along of helping talent that was overlooked get an opportunity to participate in tech if that's what they want to do, you know? That's what I did in Costa Rica by telling all the punk rock kids that they could come work with me and not have to wear a tie. So I've been asked this question recently, my guest, right? 
And so, like, all these tech opportunities, like Seattle, San Francisco, big cities, but probably not so much like a small rural communities, right? How do we make sure like the people in the rural communities get these same opportunities in tech? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And actually, every time I go back to LeConnor, I, I think about it, you know? Um, I mean, so I live uh, equidistant between Vancouver, BC and Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, very rural area, the Skagit Valley. It's tulip season. All the tulips are up. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very agricultural, very diverse. Um, you know, uh, right across the Swinomish Channel is a Swinomish tribe. Um, and uh, just an incredible culture. I, c- I can hear them uh, teaching drumming in the afternoon sometimes. And, uh, and we have a lot of young people uh, whose uh, parents are likely farmers or farm workers around us. And uh, I, I, I I don't know that I have the answer, but I'm certainly interested in how does this uh, region get an opportunity to build businesses as well, you know, especially around technology. Mm. And I don't think the answer is always a boot camp, Mm. but because it's such a a vibrant and exciting environment to participate in to build these companies, uh, I think that um, there's a lot of different hats to wear, you know, in these types of organizations. And I think that what I would hope um, happens over time, and I would like to do this as time allows, is find an opportunity to participate with, you know, where young people are at, uh, where their interest level is, and and see if we can't build an opportunity to on-ramp their ideas into businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see, especially in Skagit Valley, a lot of interesting technology around agriculture being invented there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is becoming like a, a random question, and you might know the answer. But there's a lot of you know stuff on TikTok now, right? C- canceling TikTok, you know, getting rid of it. Is TikTok really a security concern, or just like political mumbo jumbo? Because people say, yeah, they have the data, but so does Facebook, so does all these other different companies across the world. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a legitimate security concern, but I also think Facebook is a legitimate security concern. And let me let me see if I can describe why it is. I I think I have a pretty good handle on it. Certainly, like, let's say that um, that a a bad actor, Mm -hmm. another country Mm -hmm. wanted to um, really kind of make things, you know, angry or gum up the works mm-hmm. in the United States. You know, they, let's say that they just wanted to advertise a lot or like, like they did on Facebook in 2016, supposedly. <laughs> yeah. But then imagine that you're not just like putting an ad out there that being like, Oh, you know, don't love your neighbor, hate on them. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, the same ad goes to everybody because that doesn't really work. Like a lot of us would be like, Oh, that's, that's not what we agree to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead, imagine that you knew every person on Facebook as an individual, Mm -hmm. which they do. And you knew exactly what your desires were, but not only your desires, more importantly, imagine that we knew what you were afraid of. Mm -hmm. And we can customize that advertisement that you see on Facebook Mm -hmm. to exactly your fears, Mm -hmm. to drive you to hate immigrants, or to believe that there is no common ground with a conservative-minded person. You can literally drive a wedge person by person apart from each other. Now, that is exactly what was so nefarious about 2016 with Facebook. It, it is not It is not that they kind of like broadly were able to throw ads up like a billboard on the highway. It's that every person on that highway saw a different ad on the billboard. And it was carefully constructed for the right mental anguish. 
and literally trying to drive mental anguish towards you. And TikTok has that data. Facebook has that data. And I don't trust any of them in a way. Yeah. It's really frustrating. So uh, are you, uh, is your company big on social media? That's what like <laughs> advertising and like marketing and kind of stuff? We do some Google ads. Okay. Uh, we do post on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, so I think there are professional networks and, and probably that's the number one social media that I'm engaged in. Okay. Um, I haven't posted on Facebook in years. After 2016, yeah. I realized, one of the things I realized in 2016 was that like, I am a part of the problem because mm-hmm. I keep posting like my photo on there and then my family likes it. Yeah. yeah. It'd drive me crazy. Like you'll see some random Facebook put post. Facebook's still on our data, blah, blah, blah. And next day, I'm, you know, at my son's happy birthday party, you know, here's the address. Come and get like, can you make a connection here? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's weird how it infected everything. Like I was trying to um, help organize crew for sailing and I was, you know, but I didn't want to use Facebook, but that's just seemed where I kept getting driven to, yeah. right? Like, oh, if you want to put an event together to get the crew out to go sailing, you know, you need to post it on Facebook. And I'm like, but then I'm driving people to go use Facebook and yeah. I don't believe in it. And for me, like, it's like I have a lot of relatives only use Facebook, younger relatives only like TikTok or Snapchat. So like each, each social media platform is like, I communicate with a certain age person on there, right? That's right. So um, there are, uh, there is something I did that I thought was really cool and I highly recommend it. Um, a while ago, I, I have a, a, a niece and nephew. My sister was very concerned about them putting a lot of data mm-hmm. into these apps as well. And so I said, you know what? Why don't I just let, set up a Slack account for our little family and we That's can a post idea. whatever we want to each other and it's safe and it's secure and it's not just broadcast to everybody. Mm-hmm. And if we want to delete it, we can. And as a matter of fact, the free account deletes everything after like six yeah, months. That's yeah, a, that's, a, that's a really idea. So yeah, I, I, you know, when I want to post a picture to the family, I, it's a closed loop. Um, and then the only the other one that I'm actually really enjoying lately is Mastodon. So I've, I've heard of that, but I have no idea what it is. It's supposed to be like a Twitter alternative or something. That's right. It's like a Twitter, and it works really good. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's not got every bell and whistle, but mm. I, I didn't use all the bells and whistles in Twitter. Mm. And if you go to my Twitter account, I have one. It'll see, but like you'll see the address to go see my Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Um, I, I, I've liked it a lot lately mm-hmm. and it's what's called federated. So, um, different communities can be in the larger universe or not be, mm-hmm. and the universe itself can push out parts that it doesn't want. So mm-hmm. if you've got a hardcore neo-Nazi mm-hmm. server on Mastodon, it will likely get pushed out of the whole community okay, and, and not be connected. So I know a lot of social media Platform will say that they you know you know they give away data, sell data, whatever, or to add to whatever because they have to make money. Is there a way you think we have a social media platform that doesn't do this? Well, and I it's gonna be profitable. Yeah, I don't know how they make money then because their their whole you know because no one's gonna pay like nineteen ninety nine like Elon Musk is doing where the price is right per month. Right, and and that's their whole play. They were like. We we are going to hyper-target individuals so that you're selling to exactly who you want to with your ad. Mm-hmm. That is, we know enough about anybody. So even though they're not selling your data, mm-hmm. they are selling the ability to catalog you as an individual yeah. for that hyper-targeted you, you, ad. You are the product, right? Yeah. And of course, like, there's a lot of good products, you know, that are just trying to find the right buyers. Yeah. I, I'm not, that's probably, you know, the majority of what's going on. Yeah. But the, 
the impact of the bad actors is so massive that you really have to take a step back and, and look at what you're doing. And the refusal to actually editorialize the content mm. on there. I, I get it. Like, oh, we hired a bunch of editors. Yeah. You did not spend your billions of dollars no. to really make sure that the content is ethically, you know, produced. And and because people are too excited about the profits, you know? Yeah. I know. We're getting like you buy a product and then like next day, like, dude, I already bought your product. Why am I still getting ads, you know? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's your algorithm. I bought your product already. Or that creepy feeling when you were, like, talking about going on, like, a whale-watching tour, mm-hmm. and you pull yeah. up the app, and, like, there's the ad. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, a whole different computer or platform, whatever you just call yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. So, next, um, I'm pretty sure it's pretty important to you, because on your, it's on your About page, on your on LinkedIn. Can you talk about the seven social sins? Yeah, and I, I don't have it memorized as, as well as I should, mm-hmm. but um, uh, Frederick, I, I learned about it um, uh, in reading um, a book. It's essentially, I can't remember the exact title, but it's kind of like the uh, Gandhi's Diary. And, and this is something he had in his diary, but it was written by Frederick Lewis Donaldson. Do you have it there in front of you? Would yeah, you read it for me? I, yeah. yeah, so it's uh, the seven social sins. Wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, worship without sacrifice, politics without, without principle, uh, Frederick Lewis Donaldson, 1925. Yeah. So look, you can be really passionate about building companies, right? And and want to generate wealth for you, your employees, and your investors. I certainly would like to do that with StrikeCraft. But... I also need to counterbalance that, you know, with the impact that that has. Otherwise, we wind up with like some of the issues we had in 2016, because the the goal for only wealth without some measure of where that that impact has, without some ability to understand the trade offs that you're making, leads to bad outcomes. And we see that I think in worship. At times, we see that in science at times, and we see that in all these categories. And so I just, I tried to carry that with me a little bit. Like there's a price to pay in almost any decision in life. And if you're not trying as best you can to be aware of that price, you make really bad decisions. Um, At a prior company, at Koru, we were working in the human capital management space. And what we had developed was an AI product to predict the likelihood that a job applicant would be a high performer. Mm. That's incredibly dangerous technology. Mm. Um, Because, uh, and we saw that Amazon had this issue, you know, they built a similar AI product that recommended a lot of white men. I remember that. I remember there's a big controversy about that. I remember that being the news. And so um, I was really terrified that, we were playing with fire a little bit and we could do more harm than good. And so um, what we built then, we said, okay, so we're nervous. This is powerful technology. What's going to happen? We built a testing harness where every model that we that we developed, something that would do a prediction, we had a whole suite of tests with, you know, different protected classes. We looked for ageism. We looked for, you know, um, uh, sexism in the model to see what would come up because we had different companies' data mm-hmm. being built into those models. And so it's that kind of thoughtfulness that I think matters to me and how you're, what you're passionate about and ensuring that you're aware of the trade-offs that you're making. So next, talk about your decision process to have a remote 
work company and unlimited vacations. Yeah. So I don't think COVID gave us a ton of decision making <laughs> around the remote. So like we founded the company in February of 2020. And if you would have asked me then like what I was the most excited about, I was excited about coming into the office mm-hmm. every day and, and seeing everybody. Mm-hmm. But one, and this is one thing I love about, you know, a lot of my activities startups being one of them is like you you have to be aware of the context you're operating in and just do your best to do that and so covid make that made it where nobody was it wasn't healthy for anyone to come into the office and so we had to uh, do things remote and but then you also need to understand like what's what are the advantages available to me in doing this and so um one thing is is that we could hire a more diverse workforce from and i mean diverse not just from uh, um a, a race perspective or pure culture perspective, but also like geographically. So, you know, across the United States, we've got talent. Yeah, because people in Atlanta think differently from people in Seattle versus New York City. Yeah, we have different experiences and backgrounds. And Atlanta certainly has some tough history and some some real amazing successes and some heroes and heroines and everybody in between uh, that I'm I'm quite proud of. And so uh, I think that... um, I'll say a couple things about the remote work. I think from a business perspective, I'm a pretty touchy feely kind of CEO, CTO. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like the human interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that doesn't always make me good at is like strict metric achievement, mm-hmm. you know, for teams and the being remote made me be really lean into like, okay, for, for us all to be successful, the contribution from this team needs to look like this. Mm-hmm. And so I did a better job of being metric driven, you know, and designing StrikeGraph uh, from a business perspective. And so that was good. Um, there is an impact, uh, you know, we have to humanize each other. And if you're not in physical spaces, it's, it's really hard to do. One of the things I learned in theater is about 80% of communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And so if I can't see your eyes and your, your yeah. body and that language, I may have a hard time understanding your motivation or how you're feeling. And so uh, I think that now uh, we're trying to bring people together in the same space. We've got a, a big team coming to RSA uh, where we'll be able to interact as, as StrikeGraph staff and, um, and and kind of be in each other's physical spaces. So that's important, you know, to re, I call that humanizing <laughs> each other, to, to rehumanize each other. Um, I think uh, so the remote thing is kind of got forced on us, but you, you make the best of it. You can in a way. Yeah. And how about the limited vacation? What's the thought process on that? Yeah. So um, I think I just want to be fair. Like the re I think we were kind of, I'm, I'm not sure this is the ultimate answer, like unlimited vacation. But the reason that companies broadly have done the unlimited vacation thing is because you actually have to account if you say like I'm going to give you two weeks off a year, that's considered like a financial benefit for the employee, and legally you have to account for that. And so they just didn't want to account for that. And they also found that if they told people unlimited vacation, a lot of times they wouldn't take it. So people, so this is not like companies giving that is not always because yeah, it, just, no, it's not. Unlimited it's, <laughs> yeah, vacation actually benefit for the company. That's right. Yeah, but it's been such a thing like that. Employees like expect it that you know we. And I didn't have a better alternative um, that we did it. And we do try to lean into, um, I think the first thing that, w- that I really try to do is respect people's vacations. So when they're on holiday, how can we not contact yeah. them, right? Um, and and same goes for me. I kind of hope like when I'm 
God, I don't get a call. It's not not always the case, but that's what I'd like to, you know. <laughs> I mean, you'll see you're right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So sometimes there's an emergency. And thank goodness my family is is really, you know, understanding about it. Yeah. Yeah. So back to remote work. So I'm a big believer in remote work. I also am a big believer also that everyone is not a remote worker. Yeah. So how do you make sure that people you hire can actually handle remote work? You have like some kind of process, some kind of test you give them as a part of your hiring process? Yeah. Um, not so much a test uh, as just a, there are some basic understandings that help us do better. Um, and again, like, I, I'm, it's hard to teach someone the art of something, but we can give you the basic skills and then you can, you know, you can get there. So one of the things that we do is it's like, um, Hey, uh, when you're first off, you know, name your hours mm-hmm. so that people know when you're in the mm-hmm. office and then be on Slack. You know, I, I want to see the little green light on. Mm. Um, and so that's really important. I know you're in the office. I know you're probably working and I know you're available and I can ping you if we mm. need to have a quick conversation. Mm. Uh, so that's really important on the remote work. The second is, is that we ask that everybody uh, get on video if at all possible. And as a matter of fact, it, sh- it should be the outlier that you can't be on video. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, that's just. To con- we're not trying to invade your living room, but we are trying to see you. I mean, you're paying a decent salary. Like, like I always tell you, like, you have these people like, I'm tired of being in a Zoom. I'm not going to be on Zoom video anymore. I'm like, you know, are you kidding me, right? This person's probably paying you money or whatever case it be. Like, yeah. to me, it's just a common courtesy. Turn your camera on. Like, you know the means it's going to... Don't get me wrong. Like, you, you can call an employee. Hey, I, this thing is scheduled me, but man, I need to ask you this quick question for five minutes. Okay, maybe you have the camera off, right? Because That's right. But it's like... It's a weekly meeting every Friday at 1 p.m. your time. You know what's happening. Like, yeah. that's the one thing I, I don't get. Turn turn the video on. And so we, we make that a part of our policy, right? Like, there's certainly, like, times when, you know, you're – when you can't. Like, maybe you're traveling to a conference, and so you, you, you're just not in front of your computer because we've or, asked you to go do something. Or maybe my kids are using school this time, but, man, they're here, and yeah. it's like – Hell's all loose, right? Uh, although I celebrate that. I like whenever like I'm with a colleague and the kids come into the room, I'm like, hey, how's it going? Like, you know, like I try to try to not make that an issue. Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. okay. I think it's a treat to to invite each other into our lives mm-hmm. a little bit that way. And um, I have a colleague and her son, uh, w- w- uh, the colleague will sometimes say like, you shouldn't come in while I'm on a call. And he says, oh, but I know Justin. He's my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, that, that's heartwarming for me. I, yeah. I really dig that and i i want this colleague to feel comfortable you know that that i'm i'm okay with that like yeah. that's not an issue so earlier you talked about the culture you're building a company what, what kind of culture are you trying to build at your company yeah we definitely have like a, a great set of values like defined values um i think that one is is that we you know there's a couple things that are really important in there um I think one thing that I'll start out with is we want to be successful, you know, and so we do need to define what success is. We need to communicate what that looks like. And there needs to be an expectation that while we might make mistakes, the, the trend line. And, and that's a good point. You have always come like, you know, they want to do all the, the quote, quote, right things, right? Right. But doing the right thing doesn't matter if you got a business, right? That's right. I mean, if, if you're not building a good business, you're going to go out of business. It doesn't matter the culture that you built. So we need to get things done. As a matter of fact, I think that's a phrase we use in our values. And so uh, that's really important to us. And um, and sometimes it's not a good fit if if you can't you know get things done. We need to be fair with ourselves and you. And it, it, believe me, it's no in no one's interest to fail over and over and over again. That is that is not compassionate to that employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing is uh, deep transparency. You know, so it's it's okay to talk about the problems. It's okay to um, discuss what went wrong. It's okay to make a mistake. Um, so that's another part of our culture because we we can't solve like deep problems if we're not able to understand the problem well. You, you won't be able to create a solution. Uh, so that's that's a pretty critical part of the culture. Um, and then I think another one that's really important to us is that you're more than your work. So this is not all that we do, you know, and that means like carving out time for your hobbies and the extra things and the things that you're passionate about and also um, celebrating that in a way, you know, um, uh, being able to say, hey, I, I love that you're a part of this and, and maybe go visit them while they do it. If, you know, if they race bicycles or, you know, there's something else. I, yeah. I like to go, you know, connect in those events sometimes with them. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you're hiring right now. But when you're hiring, you're like, whatever position, what, what can somebody do to make themselves stand up? Besides, you know, of course, you fill application out, link with a case. Well, what does somebody can, someone can do, like, put themselves, like, on the top of the pile, so to speak, to yeah. get, get someone's attention to your company? I think um, you got to show passion for the practice. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an engineer, a software developer, are you, are you passionate about mm-hmm technology you know is that your focus um if you're on our sales team you know are you, are you passionate about people getting connected with them learning what their problems are and seeing if you're a solution so that passion is really important um it helps a lot that uh, you um are a good teammate that's critical like i'll hold passion and ability to collaborate well over any technical skill set, oftentimes, like the technical skill set, we might be able to get to or learn ourselves into, but the other two, you got to fundamentally bring with you. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, um, I built a lot of teams over the years, and um, I cannibalize a lot of times the teams that I worked with in the past for the new team that we're putting together. So I think all of my leadership team, except for my co-founder, uh, we've all worked at other companies together in the past. And that's probably true of a lot of the people that we've hired is that they probably knew somebody that's already been hired in a way and that um, they built a relationship with that person at that prior company or even even through some other relationship where we got to know them before we made a hiring decision. Uh, Then they kind of go through the interview process. We make sure that we have general consensus that that manager and the team around them thinks this is a great person to add uh, before we take a final decision. Our next part of the question, like it kills me if people say I'm a hiring expert. No, you're not. Right. Like odds are you're not hiring. Every, every person you hire was not Homer said not a home run right. I know. <laughs> yeah. So like having said that, you know, what's the process for y'all to sign, okay, this person is not a fit or not a match or, or not making it so to speak, right? How do y'all go about, you know, let this person know that this doesn't work out? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I just want to say that you're absolutely right. Like I think I've hired a lot of people. But I also think that like two thirds of the people, I, uh, well, two thirds of the hire people I hired were exceptional fits, but one third, like I'm, I might have made a mistake. Right? Like, they killed me on LinkedIn. You see this profile, uh, hire an expert. Yeah. Like, are you really? I know. Are you really? Yeah. Do we see some stats behind this claim you're making? Because I'm a bit, bit some money. You're not telling the truth. And people change, right? Like yep. you, you might come in in one situation, and over time things change or what you want to do. So you know, it's not it's not static. And it's people too. Like like when I was in the army. I've had like I took an old job and and the other person I took this place for like you know this person is like piece of piece of shit he doesn't work well and the, and they come super software right yeah. or vice versa I toss my this guy is worthless right I'm okay I don't say they're worthless you know but I say he's not a good performer and like 
be the best soldier ever for this other person, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. So let's say that, um, I mean, first off, that transparency part initially means like a lot of like really important discussions early on. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I actually don't, I don't, I think it's, I get why we do it. You know, some people need some rigor around like providing feedback and that's why we do the, the, the big reviews or six month reviews or stuff like that. But I try and talk like at that one on one that week, what's going well, what's not. And even I try to lean in with, you know, compassionate discussion about what the challenges are. Um, early, early on. So that's, that's part of the strike graph culture. And I, I get, you know, a lot of people tell me what I'm doing wrong as a CEO. <laughs> I, I try to listen carefully and balance that with what I can improve. Um, and so that's one important aspect of what we do. I think we do that pretty good, but sometimes things can get to a place where it's, it's just, it's starting to feel like we need a real serious measured change mm -hmm. in what's going on. And in that case, uh, we write a performance improvement plan. And the manager uh, for that individual will write a performance improvement plan. Our template is really amazing. Kudos to um, to our director of assessment. He helped us uh, design this, but it's based upon our values. Mm -hmm. So like one of our values is we get stuff done. Mm -hmm. But let's say that you're kind of like not meeting expectations mm -hmm. for delivery. In, in the performance improvement plan, we'll say where in the values you're kind of missing mm -hmm. our values, you know, just so we kind of level set what the expectations are. And we put a time frame and goals around those particular issues in a written document. And we ask uh, the employee and the manager to sign it. Then there's a period of time where they have an opportunity to really bring that improvement to bear. They're working closely with their manager. They're there as a mentor to help them and talk about what's working and not. And certainly you might start off like not making progress, but then the more we talk about it, the more we see where the issues are happening. You as an employee have an opportunity to, to improve. And I like to say like, there's a, there's kind of a saying that like, oh, this is just like an off ramp. Like that's why you write these things. That's not true for us. 50% uh, of the time we've seen employees meet the goals of the performance improvement plan and, and just be really successful with us. And I'm very proud of that. I'm, I am more proud of that than, you know, that, that change and that work together than than many of the the HR initiatives that we've done that that we we truly believe that these plans are put together and we work very hard to be thoughtful about them in a way that gives an opportunity for success for that employee. However, sometimes it's not successful, right? And then we need to have an honest conversation that this is not a good fit. And we're able to look back at what our goals were and what we were trying to achieve and how we missed them. And of course that's emotional. No one, no one likes to be told that it's not working. Um, I've sat on both sides of that seat before myself personally, and it is really hard, you know, no matter which you are. Um, but I, I just, I try to be compassionate. And I have learned a long time ago that it is not compassionate to keep someone doing something that they consistently fail at. That, that is hurting them. And they need, they need an opportunity to find the team or the initiative or the project or the people that they can see success around. And if we're not that team, then that's that's totally okay. Yeah. yeah the sooner we go, the better. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's me like people who have like HR people say, you know, fire fast. No one fires fast because there's always, I can't let Jason go. 
It's his wedding anniversary tomorrow. Yeah. Oh man, it's a weekend, you know, or it's always some excuse, right? Yeah, it's never a good time. No. And you always got your life going on. But the problem is, is that the longer you go, the the harder and harder it is. And the more invested that person is. And not only that, the people that work for you who are actually doing a good job, like, man, Jason's still here? Yes. Like, how many chances is this dude going to get, right? I but, think not enough managers understand that they are va- losing real face mm-hmm. in the one job that they are so meant to do, which mm-hmm. is keep that team working well together. And if, if you're... I've been that staff member. Mm-hmm. You know, they had another staff member that really was awful and been like, man, you see it. You're the manager. Why don't you yeah. let them go? It's like, this is your job. <laughs> so how do you, how do you make sure your manager get trained correctly? I think a lot of people that get promoted to management and there's no training for them. Right. Or, yeah. or how do you make sure they, they get, I won't say leadership skills, but like get groomed to the new position. Yeah, we do a manager training for, because we have a lot of people that weren't a manager before, but then move into a management position. And there is a manager training that we offer for anyone that's doing that process. The other thing I think is really critical is set a good example. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could be a great manager and they can see me doing the hard work, you know, making the tough decisions when it's time, then uh, they will understand that it's both my expectation as well as their opportunity to do the same. So back to tech, is there any tech out, new tech out there that excites you? Um, that's a great question. I, I'm jaded, <laughs> Jason, you know. Um, I'll tell you what I'm super curious about is the, the end problem uh, in tech. And it's funny because um, I I really am curious about like quantum computing. I think like vastly faster processors are going to create really interesting um, uh, new new problem solving techniques that are really hard to do on the types of computers that we build today. No matter no matter how massive they are, right? Um, although I think there's some very innovative things being done with software emulators around quantum style computing as well. That could be a bridge into that hardware space. I mean, from a cybersecurity perspective, I think um, if we see a lot of leaps and bounds in either quantum computing or simulated quantum computing, we're going to see a, we're going to see an arms race around encryption, data mm-hmm. encryption, because it could be that we're very easily able to crack data encryption. Um, I know that there has been a lot of talk about like chat GPT and stuff like that. And I actually just wrote um, a couple of things on Mastodon about this uh, this morning because I'm, I don't see it. Like I am not like I've worked a lot in AI. I've been doing natural language processing and algorithmic, you know, programming for a long time. And me and a colleague were playing with chat GPT yesterday. And I was like, what you know what is the actual point of this thing like I, I just do not get it because we were asking it questions and it was like a really bad cliff notes it was really bad cliff notes yeah. you know it's like it's just a, like a, maybe a higher level google if that you know yeah so let's see what's going on here right like okay we got this new natural language processing solution chat gpt3 and it does a really good job of summarizing an article mm-hmm. okay well you know just a couple of years ago, I, I had models off the shelf that could pull out the main ideas, pull out the supporting arguments, you know, pull out all that data in, in just an absolutely fine way. It wasn't that big a deal. The only other thing that it's slightly good at is forming paragraphs. Mm-hmm. So we went from it being able to like write a sentence with mm-hmm. proper grammar to be like, oh, I can piece together two or three paragraphs. Okay, that's better. What are they using it for? The search engines 
are further disintermediating the searcher looking for information from the source material and not with any added value, right? Because they, they can't even look at that source material and delineate what's true and not. They're just sucking up the internet. And so you can get a lot of fake, bad information out of these systems. And the only reason it seems like it's intelligent is because it can form a complete paragraph. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I, I get it. It is a turn of the crank better than what we've had in natural language processing systems. But it, the hype is not worth the squeeze. And it gets me like on LinkedIn, like every other post on LinkedIn is like, Use chat BT for this, use chat GTP for this. And you look who posts like it's a marketer, someone has no tech background, like yeah. do you know what you're talking about? And back to the hype, do you think that all this hype because it's Sam Altman who's the CEO, because he has a you know, former YC combinator CEO Absolutely. background, you know, he has you know all these people. I think that's part of it too, There's right? a lot of dollars invested, billions. Mm -hmm. Billions of dollars invested in these things because it's because it's Sam Altman. Yeah, so they're 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 like, oh, this has got to be. We got to figure out a way to monetize it now. Like we put all this money into yeah. it, and this is all we got. Yeah. Know? And so I I, I look I, I I love that we're making progress. Mm. I think there's a lot there. I don't know that I see this like magical moment that this this zeitgeist that people seem to see. Um, I will say that what what I do think is quite interesting about it is its ability to write code. Mm -hmm. And so I think every software developer in the world should be playing with it like, you know, write me a function that does this mm -hmm. and seeing what it spits out. Yeah. So, but remember code is not English, right? Yeah. And there there is a really distinct like beginning middle end to the way a function works. It's it's logical. Um, it is like logics, like math quantitative um, thought structures in mm -hmm. a way. And so I do think that that's intriguing about what it's doing, but I also see what it's doing. It's just it's been able to gather up every open source project in the mm -hmm. world, all the code that's in there, and try to predict what you know the code should look like that um, you want out of it. Is there a tech? Is there a new tech out there that actually kind of scares you? Like, like this is not good for humanity. Um, I uh, I think um, the quantum thing is a little scary because if we lose all our encryption. Uh, no data is safe at the end of the day. Like all, all, our ability to like bank online goes out the window because all, all your passwords will be decrypted as you send it into the server. You know, it'll know your login. So that's the one that I think could break a lot of things before it fixes anything. It's pretty scary. Um, I think that uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I wonder how people are going to deal with AI generated video and audio. Um, that is a little scary um, because I read about a security issue where um, essentially they took recordings of a woman and uh, used those recordings to generate their voice, what they wanted the voice to say, and then basically made a phishing call to that person's father mm. that sounded like that woman. And so I think you're seeing an ability of AI systems to fool our brains mm -hmm. in places where we trust communication. Mm -hmm. and we've seen this before, right? Like the Gutenberg press is a perfect example of like the 1800s with pamphlet printing. You could print whatever you wanted on a piece of paper mm -hmm. and people are like, Oh, maybe it's like the Bible. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should believe it that way. So we, we may, I think that's a little scary and we're going to, 
we are going, there's no solution. People are, these tools are here today. Uh, people are just going to be able to uh, be careful about discerning what honestly they can trust and not. Yeah, like how do you know what to trust? There's deep fakes, you have phone calls, like yeah. you see stuff, you know, on TV and they'll tell you this is a deep fake, this is a real person. Like, looks like the person. Yeah. And then you're like, well, maybe it look like, looks like me with, with the Instagram filter, you know, but I could pass for me, the voice sounds the same. It's made a little glitch here and there, like. Right. Um, I saw once an AI product that would, depending on, depending on your, you know, all the data they collect on you, mm. and there's a lot, let's say you're logged into Facebook and then you go navigate to another website, mm. right? They might have a lot of information from Facebook about you. Mm. They might be able to tell that uh, you're Latino, you mm. know, that that's your like cultural background. Mm. And they would use AI to regenerate the images on the website mm. to look like people of your culture. Yeah. So, you know, you're just gonna have to be careful that they're selling you something here. You know, and the trouble is, I think there's a lot of people who are not tech savvy, right? Yeah, the everything. Oh, it's on the internet. Must be true. I've seen this. It's not. Or you know, like the, I would say, gullible or naive, but you know, gullible or naive, right? Then all the stuff works. Yeah, because um, what we could rely on is shifting. Now, what I hope happens is that um, the the outlets, the media producers that we do want to trust, that do drive themselves to good <laughs> ethics and practice mm -hmm. good editorialism, kind of get lifted up in this environment where it's like, I can't trust anything, but, mm -hmm. you know, I like, let's say, uh, uh, you know, like, um, I, I think the Republic or like Wall Street Journal might mm -hmm. be a, like a conservative leaning mm -hmm. type media outlet, mm -hmm. but maybe you're like, no, they have a good editorial group, they mm -hmm. do their research. Mm -hmm. I kind of trust, you know, that they're factual and they're reporting, you know, for me, I I have like a New York Times subscription mm -hmm. and I, I realize probably a lot of people perceive that as a little more liberal, but, um, but I, I go to that specific mm -hmm. outlet cause I trust that there are human beings making mm -hmm. decisions about what goes into it. Yeah. News. That's another story, right? You know, you got Fox news they're in the suit right now for, you know, the voter fraud thing that, right. you know, whatever, you know, CNN, a lot of people call them the clown news network, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, the days of what's his name, uh, man, um, I can't think of the guy back back in the 60s, 70s, uh, Walter Cronkite. Cronkite. The days of Walter Cronkite are long over, unfortunately, right? They're long gone. Yeah. I think our first issue, we were trying to solve access to that information. Mm -hmm. And then we were trying to make that information more approachable because it was more visual, mm -hmm. you know, like storytelling in mm -hmm. a way. Uh, and But now, you know, it's, it's just so easy to generate that information. You don't even actually need human beings to do it. A machine can do it. Yeah. That you're just going to have to be really careful about what you trust. You know? Yeah. So on to a, a more fun topic. Okay. Let's talk about your tattoos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how, how many do you have? Oh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I think six, six. or seven. Yeah. And when did you? When, how long ago since you got your last one? Uh, let's see. I, I got this part on my arm, my sleeve done like two years ago, okay. two or three years ago. And um, this is for uh, the South. These okay. are like different flowers mm -hmm. uh, that you'd find in the South, Magnolia. Okay. Trying to keep um, the Southern connection. Yeah, for sure. It's been a deep uh, part of my culture and my background mm -hmm. and where I come from. And, um, and it, there's a lot that I love about it that I carry with me wherever I go. Yeah. And how long, when did you get your first tattoo? I was uh, 19. 19? I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a really conservative uh -huh. uh, household, and I was a way Justin, to Justin, you're going to hell for this tattoo. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> 
You're going to stick with the devil now. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I marred the temple, yeah. you know, as I would say. Um, I, uh, I, and I, I got my first one on my leg, mm. you know, way back in, in college, the second I was out of the house. Of course, like at that time in the um, early 90s, mm. there's a lot of like interest in body modification, yeah. piercings, and I, I was really interested in all of it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it's, t- it's, it's like definitely like more professionally professional now, you know, versus back in the day. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of acceptance over it. And, and you know, it's it, like you were in the military, you know, they, they had the rule about the wrist. And I think like yeah. the, the collar, like you, you didn't do anything like that. But today I, I see people in very professional environments with face tattoos and yeah. stuff like that. And people don't blink twice anymore. I used to get questions all the time, right? Like, oh, yeah. what, what's that about? Why'd you do that? And um, and these days, uh, no one blinks an eye. They don't even notice. No, they don't. Especially up in the Seattle area. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. You know, like. Yeah. Do, do you own, celebrate yeah. it? And if you want to talk about it and share it, then that's all. Awesome. As long as you have a face tattoo that, that says F you or, you know, like, <laughs> oh, I hate all people, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it can get unhealthy in a way, mm-hmm. right? Some of the body modification stuff, yeah. but I, I don't judge whatever you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you already talked about this some, but can, can you go more detail, like why you start a strike graph? Yeah. What, what you focus on right now? What do you see the future of strike graph? Yeah. So I think one of the reasons I... I just, I love what I do. I, I was talking with a friend uh, recently that's another founder, and uh, I was like, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about doing another one. And I was like, aren't you tired yet? You know, because I'm in the middle of it. Some days I'm tired. You know? <laughs> and uh, he goes, oh, it's, it's, it's what I know. And, and I think to that, like something you're talented at and passionate at, I I do feel like I have a talent for it. And, um, and so I, I really, um, I like doing things, you know, that I can contribute back to and be successful at. So uh, that's why I got interested. I wanted to do another startup. Um, I wanted to build, I wanted to do something different. There were lessons learned. Uh, so I wanted to do something that provided a lot of value for the customer was ethical in a way and was a, an economic return for investors and myself. So we're, that's also what we're striving for here. Um, where do I see StrikeGraph growing? Well, right now we're in a heavy growth phase. You know, we are adding lots of customers all the time, but you know, we're also trying not to grow our costs. So we're, we're trying to find that equilibrium point where we go from just being a VC company burning cash to profitable. And we're really tracking, you know, what that looks like. That's a healthy company, you know, and a healthy company is certainly more valuable to investors, but it's also more valuable to employees because it can be around longer. It's more resilient, you know, to kind of crazy shifts in the market or valuations or stuff like that. So that's something we think about quite a bit. Um, what we are going to do is we're going to continue to develop very innovative technology that is disrupting, you know, this issue that I have with um, the lack of repeatable testing in security operations. So, you know, when I send the data in for a test, I want the same exact results every single time. If the tests are not reliable, you know, if the, if the auditor grades the same data differently every time they see it, then that's not a valid assessment. And so I, I am like pushing and StrikeGraph is pushing to say, hey, technology can test quantitatively with a repeatable outcome. So we can test the encryption uh, settings on your servers over and over and over again and ensure that you're meeting that outcome or that standard. 
and, and take away the possibility for human error. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for humans in these testing processes in really reviewing the outcomes of the testing and providing feedback and opportunity for organizations to improve. But someone clicking through a spreadsheet row after row after row is, is not just not a healthy way to ensure that you have good security practices. So for StrikeGraph, how do you how do you do the decision or was the thought process for like going from like product market fit to growth, right? Yeah. Because I think I got to, almost got to turn a switch on, right? How did you decide to do that? Yeah. Um, so you know the 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 phrase that I heard all the time is like, well, once you reach a million in recurring revenue, you've got product market fit. And of course, when we make these rules, there's always something that breaks it, right? And so. Uh, uh, I had this complaint <laughs> a little bit where, especially when we saw some of our competitors in Silicon Valley, they like, they like blew out their valuation and raised a ton of money mm. super early on because they got to a million in ARR really mm. quickly. So did we. But I started looking around at what was happening. I was like, well, wait a second. I realized that we got a million in ARR, but I don't, you know, I just, as someone that has built a lot of product, I don't feel like we've got this product nailed mm. just yet. And so I started uh, uh, talking to people saying, what's <laughs> happening in our marketplace is that it's easy to get problem market fit. Mm. There are so many people desperate to solve this problem because their next big contract relies on them getting through this security audit that they're willing to throw any amount of money at anything that looks like it's going to stick. And so you're getting a real false positive from some of these products in the marketplace that they're going to be the big winner when all they really have is problem market fit, not product market fit. So for us, the product market fit has been a transition. And I'll tell you when I really think it matters is um, after you've gotten through your first year of renewals. So if you sold a bunch of customers and they use that product for a year and you get up to the renewals and only 10% of them sign back on, you do not have problem product market fit, yeah. right? And so I think we are at the tail end of that in a way. I allowed it to spread out even as we scaled the business, you know, because now we're driving at industry leading retention and expansion and, and in our particular marketplace compared to our competitors. And so that's what really counted to me. I think that's what you got to look for. What advice you have for any brand new entrepreneurs just starting out? Yeah. Um, Don't do it. No, no. <laughs> it's an adventure, right? I mean, a couple, a couple of things that I think are really um, important is that um, one thing that I tell folks, and this is a very pragmatic way to think about it, is that, um, you know, don't make investors your revenue stream. Mm -hmm. uh, too many people, and, and I'm, I'm a little frustrated uh, that our market has, has thought about it this way. They don't think about like the amount of money they're earning from customers because that's the true value wheel for everyone, investors included. They think about investors as a revenue stream. You know, like, oh, I've raised so much money, we're successful. Oh, that's not the way it works, actually. That's not the definition of success. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, Really focus on customer value, retention of customer, you know, where they're at. Listen to that carefully. If you're paying attention to that, investors will want to invest. Mm -hmm. But balancing the valuation and the amount of investment you're taking on for the outcomes you want to go after with that investment is really important. That's the art, I think, of a lot of this work. The second thing is that, um, I, you know, I never got any any business I ever built to grow bigger than it was meant to grow. 
like period. Uh, you know, I, I, I said to somebody recently, like, you know, building a company is kind of like a jello in the Tupperware. <laughs> it's just going to fill in the Tupperware, you know? Very true. And so don't take it personally. You know, the business you build might only be built to be so big that that might be its appropriate size. That's the size of the market. That's the size of the opportunity. That's how much people are willing to pay for the value it provides. Some of those things you can't, change. Mm-hmm. You know, they just are. And it's good to be aware of them, but you're going to get surprised, you know, as you, as you go out there and learn things too. And so don't take it personally, you know. So, so follow up question on that. Suppose someone, someone's out there, they were working the company two, three, four years, right? And of course, people say, don't never give up, don't quit, keep on grinding. But when should someone say, okay, maybe this isn't working for me? Like, what, yeah. what kind of like signals do they say? Of course, you, you, you see the meme where the person is digging for diamonds, and right before he's supposed to hit the diamond mine, he walks away. Right. Yeah. That's a big fear. But like, when, when you should, okay, maybe I need to at least take a break. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to like point out that like, that's like the way a gambler thinks, right? Like, <laughs> oh, this is like this next thing is going to be my big win. It's going to come in until you're completely broken. You have nothing left. That's when you need to be careful, mm-hmm. right? And so maybe, I, you know, how we started the conversation is important to think about. Where's your mental health at? Mm. Do you still have a passion for this project? You know, are you walking in happy and excited about what's going on? Mm. Um, And look, there are all kinds of like interesting outcomes that I've seen of businesses over the years. You may find a buyer, you know, Mm. and and it might be the right time for you to hand that company off to someone else. Roundbox, you know, my consulting business, we were pretty successful. You know, we've grown a great business. I hadn't taken on any capital. I owned it completely. But you know what the problem was? Is that our customers needed us to grow even more. And I couldn't afford the scale of the growth anymore. Like my house was out there mm-hmm. on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so I recognized that I had taken it as far as I could. And luckily we had a good buyer and I, I um, found an M&A opportunity. And we we handed it off to them to continue to grow. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So, you know, you have a lot of stuff going on, CEO, other, other products you're working on, selling. How do you do your schedule like every day? Like, do you have like, a block calendar event? Like, how do you make sure like you stay focused? Yeah, so um, I don't know that I'm the best at this. <laughs> uh, my day tends to fill up with a lot of meetings um, and I tend to keep it pretty open because especially in a fully remote place, mm-hmm. like this is my version of the open door policy, mm-hmm. right? Like you can book a, I, I tell new employees that one of the things every onboarded employee does is that they set up a calendar event with me mm-hmm. so that they know how to put time on my calendar so we can talk if they have something mm-hmm. going on. Um, however, we all try to be respectful. Like that business hour things has a flip side, mm-hmm. right? Like, Outside of business hours, we try not to bug each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked with a couple of folks who are starting to build this habit where I'm like, even if I'm on the phone, let's say it's like seven o'clock at night and I'm on the phone with somebody and we're like, okay, we need to prepare this communication for somebody else on the team. Um, I'll say, okay, just make sure and schedule that email to go out in the morning. Mm-hmm. Cause we don't, we don't want to build this culture of where like you're getting emails all hours of the night mm-hmm. and feeling like you have to respond right away. Um, so I think that's part of what you know, setting a good example when we do that, maybe others will in our team will learn like, Hey, this is not, even though I'm thinking about this tonight, this is not something that impacts somebody else on the team with. I I would say that we're, I also have given myself some grace that these things ebb and flow. So there are times when things are incredibly busy and I have been incredibly busy for the last nine months. It's been a real 
a real hard push um, for some things that we're trying to do, but I've got to let it ebb. You know, there's got to come a time and, and I, you know, I see kind of a milestone I'm trying to achieve here that we're working at. And after that, I need to find some time to like pull back a little bit and give myself some space. So giving yourself the grace to deal with that and lean in, you know, when you're excited about it and passionate about it and, and then being able to pull back and say, okay, now I need to take care of myself is important too. And your company run on Seattle time? Yeah, generally, um, we'll do a West Coast time. Uh, some of our East Coast folks will, you know, get off at like three thirty, four o'clock, as yeah. opposed to you know six p.m. at mm-hmm. night, and start a little earlier. But mm-hmm. uh, then we also try and flex with each other. But the bulk of all of our staff are kind of in the Pacific Northwest, and so or West Coast, and so I think that kind of we kind of naturally gravitate to that time zone. And every once in a while, we'll have somebody that like works remote for a little while from like Europe or something. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe they want to go, you know, for a month out there and, mm-hmm. and see things. Uh, they'll, they'll generally work during the rest of their team's time. Yeah. And, and that's just an ask we have for remote workers. Yeah. And so you, you've already raised a seed round and an A round, correct? That's right. Are you going to, any plans to start playing on a B round raise or this down the road, down the road? Uh, no, we will raise another uh, round of capital. I'm not sure what we'll call it. Uh, it's, it's funny. Like I was talking to uh, a colleague the other day and they're like, well, you can name a round, whatever you want. Yeah. Round one, round two, right. B, C, C. It's like craziness. Like, so, so I was like, well, back in the day we used to like name all our servers after tool albums. Can I do that? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> so, uh, so, but we, we will, you know, we're a venture capital capital back mm-hmm. company we're fast growing mm-hmm. and uh that's what our investors would like us to do that's what our board would like us to do and so to keep that growth going we we will raise another round yeah yeah and so with starcraft do you see like yourself being the ceo into the foreseeable future or do you see yourself handed off and start another company just yeah. like you have the startup bug so to speak i i think for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. i'm really proud of what we built mm-hmm. i'm not burnt out i still got a passion for it um i've I continue to feel like I'm the right person for the job. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really important to me. Um, But I, you know, it's hard to look really far in the future. You know, am I the right guy to take StrikeGraph IPO? I'm not sure. I'm not a banker. You know, I have never done it before, but I lean heavily on my board Mm -hmm. and they have deep experience in taking companies all the way through that process. And so if I felt confident and they felt confident, that's a big part of my confidence, then I, I'd be happy to, you know, have that adventure in a way. Now, do you have a board of advisors and a board of directors or just one or just board of directors? Just a board of directors. Yeah. So, you know, I, I only have so much time to like manage mm-hmm. uh, large groups of people. And and so I think the our board of directors have been a great, you know, group. Yeah. And then like how many people on your board and like how do you how do you manage them? Right. That's another job you have. Right. Yeah. yeah you got to manage them. Yeah. So our board is kind of small comparatively. And um, I like that. There's only three board members, uh, myself, um, Hope uh, from Madrona Venture Group and Alex from Information Venture Partners. And so we've kept a fairly tight knit board. Um, if we raise another round, generally when you do that, one or two board members get attached to the business. And five is quite a bit, you know, that's a lot of people to kind of manage. Y'all meet like once a quarter? Uh, yes, currently. Although when we first started the company, the board meetings were once a month. So we started. I mean, that's understandable. New company. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot to talk about, a lot of problems to work through. And also, you know, that early investor, super early, like that seed stage investor, there's a lot for me to learn. And so we're checking in quite regularly. But beyond the board meetings, I, I have one on ones 
with my board members, you know, once or twice a month mm -hmm. on a regular basis where we check in for 30 minutes about what's going on. So they're always in the loop and are aware of what's happening. So, so being a CEO, all this kind of stuff, you're fundraising, you're about to fundraise your company. Do you still find the time to network? Uh, I, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I just got off of, uh, this uh, uh, this uh, CEO retreat for Rise of the Rest, and I met a lot of new people. Mm. You know, for us, we're a B two B company that sells to like mid sized businesses, mm. fifty employees to um, hundreds, if not thousands. And so, me just getting out there and meeting folks um, is really uh, valuable for legion and partnership opportunity when i was young and um i was really nervous about networking mm -hmm. right like when i first started my round box like way back mm -hmm. in the day i was like man i'm gonna have to go do this swarmy thing <laughs> at this cocktail event and hand out cards it's just like not me i'm a programmer um but i think over time and i i do this a lot when i'm talking to young people that are just kicking off their career i the way i think about networking now is more like art it's like you need to meet people that you actually really like and connect well with and are kind of aligned from a morals perspective or a passion perspective. And you build that like kind of piece by piece, brick by brick. You know, it's not just the number of contacts in your LinkedIn. It's yeah. it's really meaningful engagements that matter. And so, yeah, I, I continue to, to network and grow that network. And, and that's really important. Yes. So, Justin, anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything else you want to talk about? Um, I think, uh, I think we did a great job, but I want to think of something that would be fun to uh, chat about. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I might just, I might just go back, Jason, that like, you know, I know your experience with the military had to teach you a lot about like a lot of different people and, and, and a lot of different engagements. And the more and more I'm outside of the typical, like, VC bubble, and I, I love like Skagit Valley where I'm at, very rural um, area, very rural economy, um, Atlanta and stuff like that. It's just that there's just such a, a vibrant set of humanity outside of these these bubbles that we create. And I was down in San Francisco for like a startup event um, last week. It just is such a, it, it's funny because I think they have this perception that they're like out there changing the world, but they're not really engaged with it. Mm -hmm. And that makes me sad in a way because there's so much energy and passion going on for sure. I love it. But I just, I, there's just a big, a big wide world out there of problems to solve. And sometimes we're too myopic about the next social media platform. Or the, or the next, you know, last mile platform or the next social media platform, the next dining out platform, you know? Yeah. Like, like is tech really solving real problems? Right. You know, and, and I think from the days I was, you know, writing basic code to today, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm calling us all out, you know, myself, maybe sometimes as well. Like, was I really building something that helped people? You know, we, sure, we want to make money, you know, uh, but we also need to ask ourselves deeply, you know, am I ethically doing the right thing? And I think that um, it's just an important question to ask ourselves as an industry, like, what are our ethics? What matters to us? And we don't ask it often enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, so can you give us, well, first, can you give us your social media 
or emails, whatever, some people reach out to you? Yeah. So um, certainly like strikegraph.com is a great place to learn about what we do. And right on the website, you can come and get a demo or learn about that. Social media wise, um, from a professional perspective, please, you know, grab me on, um, on uh, LinkedIn. And then you can search uh, mastodon.social for uh, Justin Beals. And I'm on there as well. You probably don't know this, but how many people use Macedon right now? Any idea? I'm not sure of the number, but, but I was reading like when, when Twitter was, well, as, as they are imploding, mm. you know, a lot of people were moving mm. over to Macedon mm. and they were growing quite quickly. And okay. I think that's tapered off a little bit, mm. like not quite as big. Yeah. But I, every week I have a friend that's moved over and all of a sudden I see them pop up and they're following me now okay. on Mastodon. Uh, so, uh, so far I've really, really liked it. It's been mm. really good. And I, I guess what I like most of all is I don't feel like a bad person you know, <laughs> by putting my information yeah, up there. That's yeah. that right. Yeah. Like you put your stuff out there, try to be authentic and I get like blasted from the, all these trolls. And yeah, the one thing I, I, I firm believe in the social media platform, like has to be a way where you can't be anonymous, right? That's right. You should be able to, have to be like, you know, bourbon one, two, three, and like have your like Twitter fingers revenge, right? You should be like, you should be better, if you say something bad, whatever. Okay. Jason said this, right? Right. I, we've had a long conversation actually about anonymous communications, even inside our company. Mm -hmm. And is that comport with our values? Mm -hmm. And I have serious concerns that if, if you aren't carrying your reputation and the impact it can have mm -hmm. along with what you say, then, um, there's just an opportunity to say whatever you want. And yeah. sometimes just to, you know, piss people off right and it's not right so i have i have i struggle with the purely anonymous uh, communications for sure yeah justin can you give us any advice on wisdom or anything you want to talk about um skate or die <laughs> <laughs> that's great advice justin thanks for being today really appreciate it Jason, thanks for holding a long-form podcast. This is yes. a great conversation thank i appreciate you. it yeah and to our listeners thanks for time as well remember to be great every day Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up.